Meanwhile, back at the Hall of Justice, our mild-mannered podcasters were bombarded by gamma rays, bitten by radioactive bugs, mutated by toxic waste, irradiated with cosmic rays, born into a world that doesn't understand them. Welcome to Talking Comics episode 254. I'm your host, Mara Wood, and I'm here with Bob Ryer. Harumph! Steve Say. Harumph! <laughs> Joey Burchino. Harumph! <laughs> he killed it. He did, he did. And in case you wanted to know, harumph is not a happy sound, it is a <laughs> derogatory sad sound. <laughs> it is also the word of the night. Yes. Word of the night is harumph. <laughs> Perhaps with the additional harumph verily attached. Yes, yes, yes. I doth agree. Um, I'm still in Thor mode <laughs> um, from from doing the assignments and run. But tonight's show is is going to be awesome. It's our our pre New York episode, pre meeting episode. Yeah. And later in in the show, you're going to hear an interview with Marty Langford, who did the documentary Doomed about the Roger Corman Fantastic Four film from 19... Is it 44, Bob? Or sorry, 1994. <laughs> sorry. I How old do you think I am? No, no. Facts, I had Bob. four in my mind, and I just doubled it. <laughs> Too many fours. Well, Fantastic Four, 1944. <laughs> I wonder what it would have looked like if they had made it back then. Howdy, Sue. Yeah. <laughs> it would have been um, pretty cool. Everyone was from the cool. West. <laughs> Yeah, right? and because I made that mistake, no one's going to forget that it's 1994. This Correct. is true. So, there was there. there. There's some videos around on on YouTube. It's the pre Avengers. It's the 1950 Avengers, mm-hmm. where people have cut together from old movie serials black and white footage of people that kind of look like the Marvel heroes. They use the Captain America from the serials, and it's kind of neat. And they, they managed to stick <laughs> Professor X and the X Men and all sorts of stuff in. And there was a famous April Fool's hoax. Uh, it was on uh, CBR years ago. It was Mark Millar who started it, where he said he was he'd been interviewing some guy who was doing a book about Orson Welles, and they discovered in Orson's papers that he was trying to option Batman to make a Batman movie in 1946, hmm. and he had all he was going to play Bruce Wayne and Batman. And Basil, Basil Rathbone was going to be <laughs> at the same time. Basil Rathbone was going to be the Joker. Uh, Marlene Dietrich, the Catwoman. Okay. And they had all these things and all these. And the thing of it was, the studio said, "No, Orson, you can't play Batman and Bruce Wayne. You got to get somebody else, Gregory Peck." <laughs> <laughs> and so all of a sudden, it's you know, you start to look at their the various people's chronologies, and it's wow, he knew all these people. And they actually had holes in their schedule, and it seemed like it was going to work. It was holy mackerel, and they had supposed production drawings by Greg Toland, who is his cinematographer for Citizen Kane, and it all looked so amazing. And then it was you know, three weeks later, oh, no, it was a joke. Huh. But people people have cut together trailers for the Orson Welles Batman. That's funny. 
and, and it looks pretty sensational. I would, I'd love to see it as a, an animated feature. <laughs> I don't know how you would do that. I don't know how, you, how many people's rights you'd have to pay off. But it all fell apart when someone mentioned that the Riddler was going to be in the movie. And it was going to be Jimmy Cagney playing the Riddler. Hmm. Except he wasn't introduced until the year after. It's like, hey, wait a minute. You know, some uh, Roy Thomas or some real high, high mucky muck historian went, no, you got that wrong. It fell <laughs> apart. But, no, but they were going to they were gonna make the Riddler for the show like they did with Harley Quinn and Renee Montoya, you know? There you go. I like I like the way you think, there but you anyway, you, it's, pe- it's real. people can yeah people can look this stuff up, as uh, Casey Stengel used to say. You can look it up. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. so all I that digress. to say, we've got we've got a really neat interview later that Bob yeah. did a fantastic job oh. helping to coordinate it and and doing the questions and um, kind of spearheading the direction of of that discussion. I'm oh. fascinated by it now. And I'm yeah. real excited to watch the documentary after watching that Fantastic Four movie. So, As you know. everyone should before they see Doomed, I think. Yes, yes. And but, even better, Marty said I was precisely right about something, he which did. very rarely happens. Yeah. <laughs> Stay tuned for that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so let's go ahead and move into our lightning rounds first, because we've got a lot of comics to talk about today, mm-hmm. as well as some Luke Cage thoughts. Oh. Not spoiler thoughts, just Luke Cage. initial impressions of, of the Netflix series Luke Cage. So um, I'm going to start with I'm going to start with Steve tonight. <gasps> I knew it. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> I saved you, Joey. I know. Every time I like I sit on the edge of my seat, I'm like, she's going to call on me. <laughs> I'm not. It's like you guys are in <laughs> like it's school middle school. <laughs> it's like middle school. Yeah. Again. Oh, my God. Dr. Wood's going to call on me. <laughs> Can I hide in the corner? If I don't look at her, she will pick on me. Yeah, put yeah, my don't head Don't make down. eye contact. Yeah. <laughs> but, but Steve, would you like to share with the class today? I would like to. Uh, <laughs> Can I go to recess? Are you going to time me or should I just go? Am I, am I freewheeling it today? <laughs> just go. Just, I'm timing, but go ahead. <laughs> All right. Archie Comics. Josie and the Pussycats, number one, has hit the stands with a story by Marguerite Bennett and Cameron Diordio. Art by Audrey Mock and colors by Andre. I've been saying this in my head so many times, and now that I'm looking at it, I don't know. Size Menowitz? Sounds right. Good enough. It's, it's, got a, it's got two Zs in it, which are messing me up. Anyway, <laughs> uh, Josie and the Pussycats, if you're not familiar with the old uh, Archie property, Josie is a struggling solo musician who learns the value of being in a band when she and two of her friends become an instant sensation after performing at a benefit for the Riverdale Animal Shelter. Uh I did not know what to expect from this. I like Josie and the Pussycats. I remember them from like the old Cartoon Network and the the Cartoon Express and stuff like that. But I was never like, I wasn't like, oh my God, blah, 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 Josie and the Pussycats. But then I found out that Marguerite Bennett was writing it and that changed everything and decided to pick it up. And oh man, like such a joyous, fun, like, carefree book i love the personalities of the three girls particularly melody and her uh predilection for pets and cats and dogs and her going nuts at the animal shelter and i came to find out that the answer to the universe is not 42 it's cat 
What? Which I agree with and identify so much more. Anyway, it's a really cool book about three charming ladies and this crazy stalker named Alexandra. Uh, pick it up if you're if you're at all interested. It's a lot of fun. Uh, also, from this week from Image is Lake of Fire, uh, illustrated by Matt Smith, written by uh, colored and lettered by Nathan Fairbarn. Now, J- uh, Joey brought this up a couple of weeks back, yep. and. Uh, I don't know why, but I hesitated on buying it. And then I looked at the preview. I saw some of the art and I was like, oh, this looks cool. Uh, If you don't know what it is, it's basically crusaders being sent on a bum mission to convert and kill those who would sit against the word and will of God. Only they find vicious aliens have come to ravage the planet. uh, And it kind of forces them to confront not only the aliens, but their whole belief system as a whole, because all these things that you said didn't exist are now here. Uh, people are dying left and right, including main characters. Ooh. It's very harrowing, and the pacing of it is fantastic. It's got like it it doesn't stop once it gets started, and like one issue right into the other, big battles, uh, big losses, and uh, just beautiful, like a really beautiful, gory book. <laughs> that uh, I really liked it a lot. I actually am looking forward to picking up the whole series. It's got kind of this um, manifest destiny thing going for it that i really like yeah mara mara's uh reading manifest destiny she talked yeah, about it no, last week i'm like i'm interested <laughs> yeah no this is totally oh good i was i was done yeah but uh <laughs> yeah lake of fire is totally taking that you know like alternative history uh thing and then and then making it the the crusades and yeah. of course you have like the religious aspect and uh the treatment of of women and and like the start of, uh, I guess, like the witchcraft and stuff like that, of, of being mm-hmm. a non-believer and uh, being, I guess, a prefect is what they called it. Yeah. And uh, I always find the wars over religion, I, they it interests me because I, the, as far as both sides of where people are coming from for the sake of this thing that they believe in and whatever, and it just does it in this very entertaining way and then kind of takes this classic unfortunate story and throws in an alien threat, yeah. Make making it this weird kind of like you know Saturday matinee horror feature, but uh, it's done with a lot of style. I really like the artwork. It kind of reminds me a little bit of Faith Aaron Hicks, oh, uh, in okay. a way. And a uh, Joey, do you uh, what do you think of it when you read it again? I read the first issue, and if I remember correctly, the first issue did something very interesting it was oversized it was like 40 pages or so that that first issue yeah yeah and like the alien stuff and the the ship or whatever is in the first page or so and then for the other you know 80 percent of the book it's all of the crusades and they're like riding on their horses and going to the towns and meeting all the people and they're talking about weird stuff going on on the kind of outer lands of the kingdom and stuff um, and then they bring the aliens back at the very end. And just the way that they paced out that first issue um, really grabbed me and hooked me. I didn't know that that number two came out uh, last week. So I got to I gotta check that out. But I really, really dug um, issue one for a lot of the same reasons you're talking about. And I think that Manifest Destiny in the Crusades uh, parallel is is perfect for, for what yeah. this book does. Yeah, it's a meaty, like, it's a meaty story. You get yeah. a lot of dialogue. There's a lot of getting to know the characters as you're going through the stuff where they kind of hold up in this town to escape the alien threat. And 
you know, everybody calling them crazy. And I just, I like when they don't drag that kind of stuff out. We don't have a whole issue of people not believing the situation that they're faced with. And as soon as he's done reporting, like these things pretty much come barreling over the fences. Yeah. And, uh, there's and also terrifying. this, they're pretty, yeah, man. Gruesomely illustrated. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's cool. It's, it's a really neat, I was curious about it. And then I said, nah, trying to save money, blah, blah, blah. And then uh, I got to I got to reading it, and it's it's really fun. I like it. Awesome. There they are. And that's from Image. The, mm-hmm. I, okay. Yes. Yeah. Lake uh, of Fire. Let me jump in to say I very much enjoyed Josie and the Pussycats. Yes. Which my local comic shop threw into my bundle because, well, it's Marguerite Bennett. Bennett. And I had. You know, the show was cute in its time. It came on when I was, I don't know, 12 or 13 or whatever. And I always liked Josie much better than the Archies. I thought they were a pretty lame band mm-hmm. as such things were, even though they had more hit records. But this use of perfect word to describe this is absolutely charming. It is an origin story. It's some old and new mixed together. The art mm-hmm. is spectacular by, oh, yeah. by Audrey Mock. It's a little, little a- uh, anime manga style yes. here and there and some of the facial features very clean but really interesting page layouts you don't normally see in the, with that sort of art style mm. and just absolutely a, a, a joy to read i really like uh the band politics that go on i have a i have a thing for like music related comics where they really dive to the band uh 21 did that sing no evil does that uh where you start to how people get along and you have this Alexandra character kind of seeding hate mm-hmm. between the girls as they're trying to get their start and uh, them having to hash it out or Josie kind of having to uh, secede to the talent a little bit and kind of recognize that she's no longer a solo act and coming to grips with that and everything. Uh, Melody is hilarious as the, like you kind of have the up and comer, the flirt and the brain as far as the characters yeah. go and the moments with uh, Melody kind of being out on this date that she has and finding this stray cat. And, oh, my God, she just goes into, you know, adorable cat-loving mode. and uh, kitten or whatever she calls it. Yeah, but there's, like, there's all these little funny jokes. Like, not to spoil anything, but at the end, the end moves a little fast. It's the only thing that I'll say. It's not a negative about the book, but it's very much, like, we need to introduce these girls as a band and get going by the end of this issue. So they kind of hit the fast forward button a little bit in the last couple pages, but there's this one moment where they're kind of hashing out their next move and Melody all of a sudden just has the cat with her and Josie's like losing her mind looking at the cat and she's trying to interrupt the conversation. She's like, we need to stop talking because I need to know where you got that cat. No, really though. That cat wasn't here before. Yeah. Yeah. That cat was not here and now it's here. What is happening right now? And I just, I like that that little bit is going on in the background as they're trying to wrap this thing up. Uh, It's got a lot of personality and it has Marguerite Bennett and her style uh, written all over it. She has a real, knack for chemistry between characters now does your digital version have the backup yes okay because the it, it features an old josie story too by dan DiCarlo, i believe so that's what you know you want to contrast and compare mm-hmm. and of course as with all these archie books it has 47 variant <laughs> covers <laughs> Gotta catch all, all sorts of people yeah well i wanted the colleen coover cover now that I, once i knew it was available but i can't find it maybe oh. at the con Ooh. Maybe at the Archie table. 
Is she going to be there, Colleen Coover? No, but oh. Archie will be there. What's up with Alexandra? Why does she hate them so much? I don't remember in the cartoon. I remember in the movies when it was Parker Posey, wasn't it? Nice. Yes. Yo, I love that movie. <laughs> yeah, what did she too. say? Was it Let's Dish? Let's Dish. Yeah. When it, or Gossip <laughs> or something when yeah. she was trying to be friends with them. That was the best. I'm going to watch it again. <laughs> Is it on Netflix? <laughs> Yeah, Al- Al- Alan coming. Yes. Yeah. Uh, oh, great memories. cast. Rosario Dawson. Yeah. Now. Rachel Lee oh. Cook. Rachel Lee yeah. Cook and Tara yeah. Reid. Tara Reid was yeah. the drummer. Uh, Tara Reid is Melody. I need to see Josie and the Pussycats. You haven't seen now. it? Oh, I think dude. I have. I think I saw it a long time ago. I don't remember it worth a damn, though. It's so 2000. <laughs> yes. I watched it so yeah. much as a kid. Just over and over. <laughs> It, it, you'll love the product placement, Steve. Oh, yeah? Well, there's tons of it, but it's done on purpose. Okay. Yes. To make a point about product placement. Like uh, Wayne's World. Yes, Wayne's exactly. World. Wayne's yeah. World. Awesome. That scene is so funny when he's eating the Doritos and he's got the, the Pepsi or the, the Coca-Cola hats <laughs> on and everything. Oh, God. Yeah, I got to find out what Alexandra's deal is because there's, there's really, they don't give you her motivation. She just kind of hates Josie. And by by extension, the Pussycats. So I, I, I kind of like her as this, like, bitchy foil uh, hanging out in the background trying to ruin things. Uh, it's probably a school thing. We'll find yeah. out eventually. Ooh. I'm sure. Great character, though. She's got a great hate going on, and uh, I like it. <laughs> awesome. Well, let's move on to Bob. Are you ready? Oh, I like yeah. this. Yes, though, though I have to flip over my page. Joey's putting his feet up, adjusting <laughs> his seat. Let me, let me get my notes right together now. here. This is a second you're wearing a tiara. There we go. Okay. All right. Go ahead. Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur number 11 by Amy Reader, Brandon Montclair, and Natasha Bustos is part five of the six-chapter Cosmic Cooties arc. Mm-hmm. And things are pretty rough for Lunella Lafayette in this issue. Her hidden... Her lab has been invaded by Kid Cree, and while Devil chases him away, she contacts Ms. Marvel, not as much for help, but to try to make amends for the chaos of their first meeting. This doesn't go particularly well, as just as they begin to chat, Lunella's inhumanity kicks in, and she switches minds with Devil Dinosaur. Charming, funny, touching as usual, this just continues to be one of the best all-ages books on the stands for those who haven't caught up yet. Doctor Strange Annual Number One by Catherine Immonen and Leonardo Romero, uh, colors by Jordi Belair, uh, gives us a story centering on Stephen's former partner Flame and wife Clea, who's returning from her home dimension after her own battle with the Empirical, uh, to offer Stephen her help, if not her heart. Uh, lovely yet bittersweet romantic tale at a certain level, lined with great humor by Catherine Immonen. Uh, Leonardo Romero's art, which is a combination of David Aja, Javier Polito, and Javier Rodriguez. Ooh. So that puts Yo. you in some really nice places. There's also a backup story about the ancient one. The backup art is insane. Squirrel Girl number 12 finds Doreen, Tippy, and Nancy taking a Canadian trip to visit Mrs. Green. And, it, you know, it's all okay until, well, eh, you know, Doreen's bored. There's nothing much to do in Canada. After all, when you're in a cabin with no electricity, there's no there's no texting and tweeting Tony Stark or whatever. So she's bored silly until her mother discovers the mystery of the missing muffin. All, <laughs> all while Brain Drain, who's the brain-in-a-jar robot body hero that, that Doreen is mentoring, he deals with a new supervillain 
who's actually connected. Or is he? Ooh, Only Ryan yeah. North and Erica Henderson Ba-ba-bum. know for sure. Uh, Civil War II tie-in uh, this week is the Ultimates 12. Al Ewing shows us the team at their problem-solving best in trying to de- defeat Thanos, but it's an effort that leads to one of the first rational things Carol Danvers has said in what seems like years. Kenneth Rokovic's art on this is absolutely stunning. I mean, I was not a fan until this book, but there's some stuff here that's right out of Jim Steranko. Oh, wow. Uh, Two-page spreads, weird colors, just absolutely amazing. And really quickly, I also read Spider-Gwen, which sort of concludes the Punisher arc, but major consequences for Gwen Stacy and her dad moving forward. Spider-Gwen just has really, really been very, very good in this new, uh, new volume. I need to read it. I yes, have all do. of it, and I haven't read it. Well, that, that's it for me. Nice. Wow. You have, like, one, like, it's going to go off right now. Okay. Look at that. Um, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't that Ultimate's issue you brought up, the one that has, like, a four-page spread in it? Yes. Which one? Yes, the Ultimates? it does. Okay. Because yes. I was reading it digitally. But you need two issues. <laughs> Yeah, I was, I was thrown off by it. I was like, whoa, we're still, we're still going. I had to go back and count how many pages I scrolled through. I was like, yeah. I bet this looks better in print than it does on my Actually, iPad. It, it, it might even go to six or eight. No, it's, it's four. Yeah. I don't know, because the, uh, the one page, which is sort of the end of the credits, we have some white and some chained up eternity going on. And the huh. next page is sort of white with this bottom part of this purpley thing here mm. that kind of oh goes into here. God. So it might actually be an eight-page spread. So you have to buy four issues and lay them side by side. Or four, four, t- or four iPads, maybe. Might yeah. be cheaper. Yeah, might <laughs> be definitely cheaper. Um, who but was I, I was saying before we recorded that that issue has Carol scowling on like every page. I was talking about Captain Marvel. Uh, Captain Marvel number nine. Oh, Captain Marvel. Okay, sorry. But yeah. she does scowl a lot in this one, too. Yes, she does. There's not a single panel in number nine where she doesn't, she doesn't have a furrowed brow. Yeah. Well, the thing about the Ultimates that I really liked was, like, um, you see her interacting with the team and, and answering their questions, right? Like, when they yeah. challenge her or when they... They they push her or, you know, Mac America Chavez does something in this issue and she like, you know, she's like, why would you do that? And and mm-hmm. the way that they interact, it just is more it's fuller than what we're getting in the main series or uh, what we're getting in, in, in Captain Marvel proper. You know, like yeah. we're getting a cap we're getting a Carol that is complex in, in the Ultimates. Yeah, well, I, as long as we're on this, we'll throw Captain Marvel into the mix. It, we'll, we'll save some of that for that would have been the open discussion. It is just more infighting, more crappy logic. Carol, between this book, Spider-Woman, Ultimates, a few of the uh, Ms. Marvel, has now been told she's wrong by basically every important person in her life who remains living or not in a coma. Yes. And yet... It's only in some of these little sidebar other issues where it's like, hmm, maybe I should think about this a little. And I, I, we've, we've discussed, and, and someone, uh, someone was sending an email around that I saw bits of, you know, can Carol recover from this? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to be interesting. You know, when we, they're starting to put out the divided we stand 
solicits and the covers and oh well she's apparently a big hero from this I, mm-hmm. so must be an interesting twist coming yeah. but sure what it is how you get there from from here they got m night Shyamalan. that's why yeah, exactly. that's why they have the extra issue and the I delays see, i see dead people <laughs> yeah. and if i wear a uh, an aluminum foil hat it'll all be better um while we're on everybody the topic was of already marvel, dead <laughs> while we're uh-huh. on the topic of Ca- captain marvel um there was a point in that issue where i was just like oh carol you're breaking my heart it was um the treatment of mental illness that yes. th- like how derisive she was of it and you know, mm-hmm. you're already pegged as being diagnosed with this issue, which means if there is a hint that you're going to do something that is illegal or, or wrong or whatever, I'm going to take you down, which isn't putting faith in that person to have control and wow. um, authority over their own lives and, and things like that. I was like, oh, Alpha Flight, come on, guys, band together. You got this. Protect your own. Well. Well, they they did in a way by the end of yeah. the movie. Let's spoil it. Who cares yeah, at yeah, this point? Here we are. Yeah, they 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 walk out on her. They, what? They tell her she's Good. wrong too. Yeah. What? Yes. Even little puck puck walks out too. Yeah. Well, she yeah. insulted Aurora. Yeah. <gasps> what? By saying, because you have dissociative identity disorder. Yeah. There what? is a chance that you will be the person to bring all of this down, basically. Yo, did Northstar run up and be like, get out of here, and just run back out? <laughs> there's pu- there's punching. There's lots of punching. Carol's, Carol gets punched in the face a lot of times this week. Damn. Yeah. yeah. She's punching bag, which isn't yeah. what I wanted to see in that character, but here no. we are. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, it was. I mean, I thought it was a good issue for Alpha Flight. You know, seeing them, you know, stay true to themselves and mm-hmm. you know protect their own and and stand up for what they feel is morally right but it's a bad issue for carol in her see, own comic. yeah that's that's so sad i see ruth fletcher gage and christos gage has this book changed uh writers again yes isn't this like the third person yes. third team to be on this yes Oof. in nine issues yeah. and we're wow. getting margaret stoll soon right yes which might be better She's but gonna have would... to clean up, I guess. That's a that's a yeah. number one though, right? Isn't it the mighty Captain Marvel, something like that? I yes. don't even know. <laughs> it's a, actually it starts with a, I think it starts with a zero. Oh, so okay. So you can have two number ones. All right. Yeah. Well, I'll still uh, buy yeah. it. I put like a, her. You put her right. Let's put Carol back on Earth with a real supporting cast, and we'll be we'll be better off and let's let's go from there. let her reconnect with humanity a little Kit. bit. Here. It is yeah. bring yeah. night Kit. and day. Kit. Bring yes. Kit, Marina, and yeah, maybe. I don't know. I don't. I that. But then that would be trying to like recapture the Kelly Sue magic, and even that would have the chips stacked against it right from the start. Yeah. They need. They need to. They need to get her out from under the gun, and stop having her be the the focal point of everybody's rage for this event because it's all piling mm-hmm. onto Captain Marvel, and I don't know. That obviously is not what they were hoping for. They didn't yeah. anticipate, really, or maybe they did, and it's just a bad business decision. But and I can't speak for everybody, and you know I've read bits and pieces of of Civil War, so I don't know all the ins and outs. But she is in a lot of books that I am reading. And I just know how big of a fan I have been for years, and how I feel now. If I'm only one person, I, I'm sure that there are others out there that are just kind of blown away by how much this character has changed in such a short period of time. 
it's so much of the the values and and what I love about the character are not found in the one that's running around right now, and for her to be so front and center and people are getting this like I don't know this weird Carol Danvers they're going to have to find a way to recover from that once they start the you know money making machine of rolling Captain Marvel the, the movie out yo just, yep. she's a scroll she's going to be a yes. scroll secret invasion <laughs> secret I invasion 2 they're just going to recycle all the events again Civil War 2 <laughs> secret invasion 2 2 um just to play like kind of the the other side a little bit here just going back to Civil War 1 I mean at the time Iron Man was the punching bag, you know, and yeah. and he was the one that was getting piled on in all these issues and in all the tie-ins. He was the one that was being torn apart, really, in, in the machine, as you were, as it were, and and he came out of that series with some of the best books, Fractions run on Invincible Iron Man. He came out as a, a, one of their top-tier properties. And then the movie followed suit, too. So is it necessarily an, 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 is it, uh, is it necessarily irredeemable? No. We've seen a character be redeemed coming out of an event in such a way mm-hmm. that, uh, that wasn't necessarily painted in the best light. Maybe they're trying to do the same thing with Captain Marvel, right? Because Iron Man wasn't necessarily the, the hero that he was meant to be in Civil War One, but he came out of that as one of their most bankable properties. So maybe they're trying to do that again, but I guess the question is, can you replicate that? Or was that just you know a question of that story culminating in that moment with that film? Um, maybe they are trying to do that same thing here and the pieces aren't just lining up the right way. Well, I'll say this. I mean, for, for the, the character herself, I do enjoy, I've been really enjoying the tie-ins for the main event and stuff. And particularly, uh, we'll talk a little bit about it when we talk about uh, Spider-Woman, but the conversations that are being had uh, at Carol's expense because of her behavior and because of her actions from the people that she trusts, we're getting some really good stuff out of that. And if it wasn't Carol, if it wasn't a character that I really care about, I don't know that I would be as affected by those conversations and by the, the mm-hmm. finger being pointed if it was somebody that was like, you know, eh, you know, I know that character and I can see where they might fit into this whole thing and how it might be their fault. But because it's Carol, I'm, I'm you know, deeply disturbed. And maybe that's the that's the whole point. <laughs> yeah. You know, ah, they're very good. Never know. Very nice. Just have to wait and see. I think if Reed Richards were home, this wouldn't happen. He'd tell them all what a crock of crap this Ulysses thing is. And they'd have to listen. He's watching the whole thing from some kind of pocket yeah. dimension. Yeah, and a bucket and of popcorn. laughing insanely. I Reed. can help, but yeah, you, you do it, figure it out yourself. They got the, this. Yeah. The more yeah. we talk, the parallels are like so there. Like, where was Nick Fury during Civil War One? Where's Reed yeah. Richards during Civil yeah, War Two? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it, Joey. Yeah. Are you ready to uh, discuss your books? What books? Your lightning round books. <laughs> I got you. I got you. you got I'm some? ready. I got it. I got it. Otherwise, I'm going to take your three minutes uh, myself. I think I got it. I'm going to say the words venereal disease very soon, so just oh, get ready. Okay. Oh, okay. boy. Here we go. All right. Go ahead. Tank Girl, gold number one. Alan Martin and Brett Parson and Ashley Wood on art. Uh, Tank Girl, Sub Girl, Jet Girl, Barney, and Booga continue their raunchy, absurdist, hyper-subversive romp through the alt-dystopian outback. 
The second in a trilogy of four-issue minis from original creator Martin and Titan Comics, Tank Girl Gold sees Tank Girl discover a traitor in their midst and sends said traitor down the Fury Road, or Furry Road, oh. excuse me, a long <laughs> and winding path that leads to a punishment of deviant sex acts and venereal disease. Classic Tank Girl. Uh, I like this issue, and Brett Parsons' uh, punk aesthetic is brilliant to look at. Um... But I feel like Tanker works best when the plot is simple, and here the twists and turns distract a little bit from the irreverence and the energy. If anything, I really like Tank Girls, Two Girls, One Tank, which was a couple of months ago, uh, just a little bit more. Still, I love that Tank Girl is, is back at Titan, and they're doing these, these regular series. Um, also, Captain America, Steve Rogers, number five, Nick Spencer, and Javier Pina. I actually wrote in the review roundup, it's like either it's all like buy, skip, buy, and mine was why? Why am I still reading this book? The entire premise that Cap is Hydra and he's so Hydra that he's going to cut off the head of Hydra, the Red Skull, it just like totally has flown off the rails. Um, another uh, instance of Marvel trying to have its cake and eat it too. Going back to last week's episode, the book is committing is committing to the Hydra thing without really committing to it, as we know that these flashbacks are an altered reality. So I'm not really enjoying anything here. I don't know why I still get it. It was just in my list, and I was like, great, this again. So I might jump <laughs> off soon. Backstages number two was awesome. It just keeps getting better with every page. This issue, our characters are sent on a mission to find a paint color that no human has ever seen before, as per the actor's orders. So they venture a little bit too far down into the backstage. As things get weird and whimsical, those Charlie and Chocolate Factory Wonder Emporium parallels we drew last time really come to fruition. Uh, with the addition of two adult advisors and a mystery from history, backstagers number two sets the scene for some magic down the line. Kimmy Kim number three, you like that? Kimmy Kim number three, not much to say here other than this is one of my new favorite books. Love the characters, love the energy, love the jump cuts and the non sequiturs, and I love the visuals. Definitely on my list to lock in later in the year. Um, And finally, Tales from the Dark Side number four, Joe Hill and Gabriel Rodriguez. Remember this? It's over. The final issue is here, and it's (gasps) the spookiest story yet. Classic babysitter and boyfriend versus creepy kid storyline, but with the added addendum that said creepy kids are creepy because they're always, quote, plugged in. And what they're plugged into, well, you'll just have to read and find out if you dare. And I'm out. I'm done. That's it. That's all I got. Awesome. Uh, Let me just hold on. And he was worried. I was going to say, I still haven't figured out how to stop the timer sometimes. My timer's still going. I also read the compendium number three of The Walking Dead. It was awesome, too. Oh, man. (laughs) The Whisperers. Yes. Yes. Uh, the volume 24 of that just came out that started the um, the, the whisper war oh God, going on insane. just came out and the new Walking Dead issue comes out this week so I'm I'm hyped I'm stoked for it how many issues uh, are they in at this point oh gosh 151 152 something yeah, like that yeah some, somewhere in 150s wow. I think we're rapidly approaching 160 um, but it's I mean it's good it's consistent it's it's um every week leaves me wanting more walking dead um so that's that's always a good sign yeah man i'll keep reading it but yeah walking dead compendium very nice yeah crazy books crazy books last week yeah all right i'm gonna go ahead and get started so first off i want to um, talk about deadly class number 22 by rick remender and wes craig 
I don't know how often we've talked about this series. I feel like we're not giving it as much attention as it deserves. Um, I've read a lot of the Rick Remender books that have been coming out from Image lately. And besides Tokyo Ghost, Deadly Class is um, the other one that, in my opinion, is is top tier um, Rick Remender work. Uh, Number 22 is a new chapter for the students at King's Dominion School. And what the incoming freshmen don't know is the insanity that was the finals last year for all the students who are still around. Um, it really upset the social order of the school. There's new people on the top. There's there's people who, when they were first introduced, you're like, this guy, he's still around. Um, and uh, Shabnam is, is kind of the top dog right now, but only in name. And so it's really interesting to see how he handles the pressure and how these incoming freshmen uh, really kind of upset the order there and who in the, the lower ranks is climbing up rapidly. Star Wars, number 23 by Jason Aaron and Jorge Molina. Uh, this is the cover that I believe Mike Diodato drew with uh, Han chasing Leia through a corridor. and They're both laughing and smiling. Oh. And I love that cover. It is so cool. Um, and they have a right to be smiling and, and laughing. They had just hijacked a Star Destroyer and kind of staged the explosion of the Star Destroyer and are now trying to run it with a skeleton crew and a malfunctioning engine system that could blow up everyone any minute now. So with all these problems, uh, there's still that, that headbutting between Leia and Han. And when they realize there's no captain for the ship, both of them just flip out about it. Han wants to be captain of a Star Destroyer so bad, <laughs> only so he can say he's a captain of a Star Destroyer. And Leia does not want that to happen at all because it's Han and she's afraid that he'll screw it up. And so Han very childishly says, first one to the bridge gets to run the ship. And oh. Leia's, like, Leia's like, that's so stupid. And then she kicks him and runs. <laughs> <laughs> so while, while poor Luke is trying to put this whole Star Destroyer back together, while they're trying to figure out what happened to the Admiral who's, who's supposed to be flying into their Star Destroyer to help them out, Han and Leia are just running through the entire Star Destroyer, um, trying to see who gets there first. And like the cliffhanger for this issue is fantastic. And finally, um, we go to Manga Corner with a new book, Kuma Miko by Masume Yoshimoto. And this is from One Piece Books. And it is about a small town village priestess who works at a temple that worships bears, basically. And she really wants to go to, she wants to go to high school in the city. And the bear who lives in the temple with her talks. Everyone can hear him talk. (laughs) He's like, don't go to the city. You'll get lost. You don't know how to use a train. You don't know what any of the stuff is. You've never been on the internet. And he's trying to talk her into staying. And she's like, I'm 14. I get to make my own decisions. I want to go to the city. And he's like, don't leave me, please. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's a really cute um, little story. And, and this is volume one. Um, and it's just, it's just little kind of uh, adjacent stories about her life as a priestess and her constant wanting to uh, go further than, than where she is now. So really cute. Kuma Miko. Wow. All right. Lots of, lots of good books. Um, so Joey had brought this up in our email chain about uh, a new book coming out or an announcement of an artist on an old book. Yes. Yes. Uh, what is that? <laughs> Tell 
Tell me more. Uh, it's from Dy- Dynamite. Released a little pre pre NYCC news today uh, about a new Spirit series, the Spirit, the Corpse Makers, coming out this January by everybody's favorite Francesco Francavia. Yes, nicely done. <laughs> I'm a big I'm a big Francavia fan. Ever since um, he had a he had a brief little run on uh, Captain America and Bucky, and uh, he did some work with um, when Black Panther took over the Daredevil book. That's a throwback. Anybody? That was oh. good times. That yep. was good times. Um, and I always loved his art style. So when his name popped up in my feed, and I and I read the news, uh, I was super into it, and I sent it along to you guys, and and especially to Bob because I know he's got a it's got an affinity for the character. Um, so, I don't know. Any thoughts on that sure. announcement? Well, uh, I, I'm not going to try to roll my R's the way you do. But Francesco Francavilla, who we, 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 we all love, his style is very particular. The thing of it is, Eisner's spirit became very, very famous for very artistically composed splash pages where the buildings would be the letters of the title mm. odd shadows that would form all sorts of things is a very very particular thing he did certainly jim steranko borrowed a lot of will eisner's ideas the spirit can be obviously can be done in a lot of different ways and it's going to be interesting to see someone who's got such a an affinity for the dark yeah to, to take this character who, who after all does live in a cemetery and what is the, what is the title of this again? The Corpse Eaters. What was it? The Corpse Makers. Corpse Makers. I was close. I was close. Corpse Eaters is a very different story. That's the sequel. <laughs> but it, I'm going to be intrigued to see how he does it. I mean, I would definitely be in. Dynamite does such great work with some of these characters. So I'm yeah. in, I'm very intrigued. Very intrigued. When I when I think spirit, I think I think the blues and I think the blacks and the whites. And when I think Francavilla. I think red and orange, right? Yeah, like he yeah. just uses those colors so well, and it, it'll be interesting to see what his spirit looks like in the midst of that warm Francavilla wash. It will look much better than Frank Miller's movie of the same name. Oh, that I can tell you for certain. Oh, shots fired. <laughs> yeah, I may have to pick this up. I'm I'm interested because I've never read Will Eisner's spirit. And I've never seen the movie. I don't know anything about the character. Um, so this, uh, this may be where I jump in and then hopefully go back. He's a legend. I don't know for a spoil a 75-year-old story, but he's dead. <laughs> he, he, he's a detective who sort of survives a lot of bad stuff happening to him and pretends he's dead and, and works out of the Wildwood Cemetery, if I remember correctly. Ooh. And has a relationship with the local police chief and his daughter and has many run-ins. Again, it's the 40s. It was uh-huh. very film noir, femme fatales galore, and Will Eisner drew very, very beautiful women. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's why, the, if you thought what Sin City looked like, could it couldn't have been a more perfect marriage. Frank Miller doing the spirit? Except it wasn't. Yeah, except the story <laughs> sucked. Yeah, the story sucked, and a lot of the acting wasn't good. Uh, but the book itself, the only thing with the really early spirit books you have to be careful with, there's a supporting character that would not pass muster in this day and age, an African-American character that they named Ebony. Yep. Oh. 
Yes, and it's hideous. It yeah. is really hideous. Yeah. But he, the Eisner, the Eisner, the spirit character, <coughs> they've revived, revived, ha <laughs> pun. Um, yeah, they, yeah, they've yeah. revived that franchise so many times over the last, you know, mm-hmm. uh, so many decades that, that um, you can find something, definitely. Oh, that's, yeah. That's Matt, worth checking out. There was what, Matt Wagner did some, uh, did Darwin Cook do a little bit? I would hope so. I, I think Probably. so. <laughs> I could see that. Yeah. Yeah. Because the rights have passed through, I can't tell you, so many times. And there was even a, uh, geez, just before the New 52 where DC did something called the First Wave. Mm. Where I, I think Brian Azzarello was a lot involved in it. Where they brought back some of these characters. They had Doc Savage and the Spirit was involved. Batman, all these characters running together. It was all set more in the 30, the sort of 30s, 40s of Tim Burton movies. Yeah. Where it, it, it is and it isn't the past and the future and present all sort of combined together. There's a lot to, there's a lot of good stuff in the spirit. You know what because I want? He, he's, like, so, so Dynamite has spirit and they have James Bond now, right? And they have The Shadow yes. and they have Red Sonja and they have like all these really great properties. I want that crossover is what I want. Well, th- th- have you ever... They did two wonderful crossover series called Masks, mm-hmm. which combined a lot of those 30s, 40s characters, Miss Fury and the Spider and the Green Llama. Yeah. One yeah. Llama, to quote Aganesh. Yeah, well, that's Masks. Two volumes of it, and they're, they're in glorious trade paperbacks. With yeah. all the extra covers, because there are 14 covers for every book from Dynamite. I'm a of big course. Shadow of fan, so like, if, uh, yeah, I want to go. I want more Shadow the, stories. The first issue of the first Masks miniseries was actually drawn by Alex Ross. Wow. Or painted by interior? Alex Ross. Yes. Wow. First interiors in many years, and the first appearance of the Shadow right out of the old Orson Welles radio show was epic. Wow. Epic stuff. So you need their masks. Something something to look for. Okay. Yo. Right. Yo, says Steve. I think the Matt Fraction run of Iron Fist is on Comixology for four dollars a volume. Breaking news. Yo. <laughs> Dude, I got that omnibus on my shelf right now. Yeah, this but you is... can't read an omnibus very well. What? They're so heavy. Oh come on. You gotta you gotta lift. I'm just saying, man. Fourteen ninety nine slash down to three ninety nine. That's there's probably uh, only there's probably look, only like three volumes of that too. Two or three volumes. Yeah, dude. For, it's for like twelve 20, bucks. Yeah, it's like twenty issues or so. So you could probably yep, get the whole run for twelve dollars. Oh wait, nope. I see volumes four and five over here. They're stretching it. Wait, wait, wait though. Are those are the Dwayne Swierczynski run editions though? Oh, I think maybe you're right. Oh, yeah. maybe I was misinformed. Yeah, Fraction, oh, me. Fraction and Brewbreaker did about 18 or 22 issues, and then mm-hmm. Swierczynski came on for about six more. Yep. Is that the Claremont Byrne ones down in the corner over there? I think so. Yeah, this says Ed Brubaker. Oh, Ed, written by Ed Brubaker and Matt Fraction. Is he, That's is some it, good stuff. It's is awesome. it worth getting the whole thing? Hell well, yes. Well, it's worth getting the fraction stuff for sure. Definitely the, the, the fraction, fraction stuff. stuff. Yeah. All right, Mortal, so maybe around Mortal volume Iron four Fist. drops off. Yeah. Just, I, it counts, yeah. It's it's a shorter run than, like, the other, the other stuff that the two of them did. You know, like, it's about, you know what it is? It's about Hawkeye length is about how long it is. 
Yes. From, okay. Yeah, that's about how long okay. it is. Like 22 issues, 24 issues. And then Swarzynski comes on to wrap it up and tie off the, 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 the loose ends. But that that book is awesome. I love that book so much. Yeah. Good. Good. Uh, Ms. Marvel sale, dollar a piece. All right, enough enough promoting for comicsology. <laughs> comicsology. Oh, <laughs> comicsology did comics. announce that uh, they're doing their own like publishing line, but then I was like, did, uh, didn't, they, didn't they already have like comicsology submit? But I guess this is ones that they're actually publishing and creating a label for, like doing in house. Yeah. Instead of. Which is People versus submit, submit. yeah. Which is cool. Gonna, I love yeah. comicsology, you know? Are they going to publish them as books? That would be funny. Could you imagine? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, go for it. Yeah, very nice. Let's move on to, um, let's move on to Netflix. Luke Cage. Oh, yeah. Luke Cage. Yes. So, Steve, you went to the premiere. I did. Last so week. So jelly. So jelly. What was that I like? I know, man. A lot of people were jealous of that. <laughs> uh, that was actually, that was all courtesy of uh, my friend Lauren, who uh, she belongs to Marvel Unlimited. So Marvel Unlimited invited, you know, uh, a capped amount of people mm-hmm. to come to the premiere. Now, I've never been to one of these events. I didn't know what it was going to be. Like, I know it's Marvel and they got Marvel money and Marvel connections. But, you know, it's an it's an online comic book subscription service, right? So for all I know... They're going to like give us like a tiny little swag bag and they'll show us an episode and then that'll be it. Uh, That was not what this was. (laughs) This was you're going to be sitting in the movie theater, limited seating with the cast and crew. Uh, They're all going to be there. Uh, Like I'm sitting next to uh, Frankie Faison and uh, I can't remember her first name, but Missick. What is her first name? Simone. 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 Simone Missick. Um so like it's for me it's wild like i i do i do a lot of movie stuff right so at some point for some people in their careers this stuff starts to kind of wear off for them they they don't they don't get jazzed by oh i met this person no i met that person it was cool and they they shrug it off and they would ever take it for granted i am still very much in the mode and probably always will be where i am feel very lucky and bewildered to be in these situations that I'm in. And I've been waiting for this show since they announced it. I've been so jazzed, wanting to hear the music, wanting to hear the soundtrack. And like, what a way to see something like this with a bunch of people who are so stoked to to be there for the character and they've been waiting and you've been waiting. And then you look to your right and there's, you know, but there's my there's Luke Cage, uh, and then a, a couple rows behind us is Rosario Dawson, uh, and I'm like, you know, Coulter walks in, and Lauren and these these two lovely ladies that we met that we hung out with for a couple of hours because they were standing next to us in line. They turned out to be super super cool. Um, they were like, you know, kind of getting hot under the collar when when some of the the stars were walking in, and I'm sitting in my seat, and I'm all like, yeah, that's cool, that's cool. And all of a sudden, Lauren's like. And there's Rosario Dawson, and I just what what? I, I flip around in my seat, and I'm like practically standing on the back end of my seat, like a gargoyle, just looking for her because I actually went to uh, college with her cousin, her cousin what? Gio. 
Yeah, and so he something happened where we saw like a family photo or something, or somebody went to a barbecue with him, and she was there, and he came back to the school and let everybody know that it was his cousin. He was actually trying to keep it under wraps because for the next two years, all we did was ask him questions about his cousin <laughs> Rosario Dawson. Be like, like so, man, like. Is it weird? Like, how does it how does it feel to know that your cousin is like the object of everyone's affection? He's like, shut up, guys! Like, <laughs> you think she's cousin. hot? Like, is it weird for you? He's like, come on, guys, shut up! So, <laughs> I totally wanted to go up to her and be like, I know your cousin Geo. That would have been good. What a great it would have been. Line. But um, the one thing about this, you didn't want to. We they sat us all the way in the front. We were row A seats, like fourteen and fifteen. So we were right up in there. Uh, but we got to sit with a couple of the stars, right? Because and a couple of the producers, Jeff Loeb was there. Wow. Um, Cheo was there, uh, showrunner and writer and creator, mm-hmm. and uh, he gave this really just heartfelt speech. He had a, a loose leaf piece of paper that was covered from front to back, both sides of names, just names that he was rattling off, telling little stories. His friends from high school were there. His mom was there. His wife was there. Yeah. Um, you know, all of these people that have watched him do what he does throughout the years and see him, you know, kind of come up into this show and just a, like a heartfelt, passionate, like, we really hope you enjoy it. And, you know, here you go. And so they ended up, sh- up showing us the first two episodes. And I mean, this thing was live. Like the moment that they started playing the the uh, the real the music just kicked in and it was so loud and so in your face and you got like the wah-wah pedal going on and all the 70s uh, black exploitation music and it's just like, holy shit, like we're about to see Marvel's version of Shaft, more or less. Definitely, what he, That's definitely how it was created and created to be. That's yep. how it comes off to me anyway, sitting there and watching this thing and it's so weird to be sitting in the audience and watching this stuff on screen and to think that, like, if I just turn to my right and look over my shoulder, that there's Pops, Frankie Frazon, you know, just chilling. The land, the <laughs> landlord from Coming to America, who I love that movie and immediately watched that movie again after coming home from the from the premiere that night. And uh, just so cool to, to be in the presence of those people. And every time that somebody would get mentioned or something, people were clapping and standing ovations for the crew. And it's nice to see that stuff. You know, everybody, mm-hmm. the main cast members always get the bulk of the praise for these things. And without these other people, these things don't happen, you know? So um, I did get to go up to uh, Frankie Faison and I can't, oh my God, I keep forgetting her first name. I'm so sorry. Missick. What, what is it? Simone. Simone, Simone Missick. I'm so, I'm so sorry. I keep forgetting. Uh, I did get to go up to them and tell them what a wonderful job uh, I thought they did. And they were very gracious. And they looked amazing. Everybody looked amazing. They were going to uh, like a celebratory premiere party after this thing let out. So they were all dressed to the nines. Uh, everybody looked beautiful. And it was really... It was an experience. It was really cool. It was cool to hear them talk about Harlem. It was cool to hear them talk about hip-hop and all the different influences and all the things that went into this and just how important everybody knew that this was for the community, for the fans, uh, for Marvel, you know, presenting a a black-focused superhero show and how they needed to knock it out of the park. And, you know, it was a very... No, you know, no apologies thing 
we made this thing the way that we wanted to make it because this is the way that we felt it, it needed to be made. And uh, really super powerful stuff. And then we got to see the first two episodes, and I was... They, if you've seen the show, awesome. If not, we're going to do general uh, impressions tonight. We're not going right. to go into too much uh, spoiler-heavy stuff. But suffice it to say that they left us off at a very crucial point in, in Luke's decision-making about whether or not he was going to continue to remain in the shadows or if he was going to come forward and, and be the face of this kind of revival of Harlem. And by the, se- the end of the second episode, some stuff goes down. And there, there's some serious, serious moments in there, and just the the credits started rolling, and all I could think of was like, is it is it Friday? Is it Friday? <laughs> and uh, oh, I was dying. I was dying. I um, I mean, I to go to go right into impressions. Uh, I positively love the Luke Cage uh, Netflix series. I've watched the whole thing, and uh, I want to say very badly that it's my favorite of the stuff i'm notorious for coming on the show and always saying that new things are my favorite things uh but there is something about the luke cage show that i i don't think that any of the other marvel shows have there are some knockout performances uh like individual performances from uh characters throughout like the daredevil stuff i really like vincent d'onofrio as Wilson Fisk, he remains my my favorite character, probably of the Netflix stuff. Charlie Cox is fantastic. Deborah Wall is great. Uh, the guy that plays Foggy Nelson, Fol- Fulton from from Nuts. But the cast of Luke Cage does such an all around knockout performance. By everybody, characters that I did not expect to be involved with or like just blew me out of the water uh particularly the misty knight character the black mariah character even yes. uh theo ross's uh character uh shades shades oh shades <laughs> wait a minute Sh- he's right wait, out of the book that? he's right out of luke cage there was something about shades from the very beginning does he have his partner with him no uh, and, shades in and the, comanche in the ones in the one episode they do they are together he comanche doesn't come okay. back but he is in the one episode oh okay okay uh so I was just I was I was really blown away. Uh, Claire Temple comes back. She is a very much a part of this season, which I did not expect after Daredevil uh, and Jessica Jones of her not playing so big of a role. She's in like the vast majority of the season. Like once she comes in, she stays in mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, they're setting stuff up for later. But they give her the A material in this series in particular. She was great in Daredevil and, and Jessica Jones. She knocks it out of the park in this one. That's mm. yeah. a, a Luke Cage character. They yeah. Barred her for those other things. She's Luke's love interest for years. Oh, it's so good, though. Like, her, her, her opening scene in this is so satisfying and so funny, and it's just a great way to be like, you know, hey, guess what? Claire's coming back and you know she's going to be hanging out for a while and she's, she's be really yeah like she's awesome and, and she's really she's a you know huge part of the plot um the soundtrack was so amazing it it, it was it calls from so many different corners of hip-hop and that that time and mix mixing everything up music permeates every single bit of this show like there's almost never a point where music is not happening, whether it be live performances in the Harlem Nights Club or just, you know, 
the soundtrack to the show itself. Yeah. It is it is constantly constantly pushing culture and 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 important music that is a part of of this thing and kind of the messaging of the show. It's constantly pushing it into your ears and it sounds so good and some of the moments where they have these songs kick in are so appropriate. All the cool uh, references, like Faith Evans coming in. She used to run with Biggie. Uh, to like some of the camera work, where they they put characters in front of paintings, and paintings integrate with their character to make it look like he's wearing Biggie's crown, the Cottonmouth character. Little things like that that just make the show sing for mm-hmm. for me. And uh, and I also like having like a, an older and more mature cast. How everyone. Yes is in their like I guess they're like early to mid 30s and they play it with this like this dignity yeah. that I really loved that I don't know that I would have gotten the weight and the the history and some of like the speechifying that goes on throughout the series if it was coming from a character that uh, from an actor that looks like you know they just got out of their freshman year of college mm-hmm. I don't really know that I would buy it you know, I actually Luke think they're, uh, I think they're a little bit older. I think both Misty and and Luke, Mike Coulter and Simone Missick are like forty. I think they're thirty nine, forty years old. Ah, yeah, okay. they're, they're yeah, yeah. But I think you're right. There's a maturity there. Yeah, uh, the Cottonmouth character, I thought was really cool. Uh, there's kind of a big thing that happens in the middle uh, where we get introduced to some other people which I thought was interesting. I don't know. Maybe I like one better than the other, but it still uh, served the show pretty well and gave it a nice twist. And um, yeah, I, I, I will say I, some of the, some of the writing during the, the last two episodes, I think was maybe a little bit on the nose, but I think it's also important to say the things that they were saying and mm. kind of call, call the show out for what it's doing bold faced so that the message can't be obscured and that it can't be ignored mm-hmm. and and for as important as it is for that to to be driven home to every audience member not just the people who can get the subtext it's i think it was necessary um but i just all around i really dug it i really dug the the, the pacing of it and getting to know luke cage as a man before getting to know him as power man you know and and really getting into the psychology of him wanting to stay in the shadows because his fear is that if he gets involved, he could very, and he could end up losing himself and killing someone in the process. And he doesn't want to go back to jail, you know, Mm -hmm. and it it plays very much into his struggle and whether or not he's going to get involved. And then this person that's in his life, that's kind of this father figure, uh, basically tells him, you know, if you're not helping people with what you can do, then what are you doing? You know, you can't go backwards. You can't stay in the past. You need to move forward always. And that kind of permeates throughout the whole series of this this repeated mantra of, you know, forward always, always forward. And it's such an impactful phrasing. And when it's delivered, it just it got drilled right into me. And I was thinking about it the whole train ride home into the next day like i ended up watching the first two episodes over again once it got to netflix uh with a friend of mine we binged the the, pretty much the whole thing in one run and um i had a person who'd never seen anything marvel uh practically my little sister serena she watched it with us she positively loved it uh and i just i like 
all of the all of the Marvel Netflix stuff, I think they all have their own values and their their own great things and great points. Um, but this one just really, really like rocked me to my core. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think part of it is because it has, I think it has a, a heart and soul that uh, Jessica Jones and Daredevil just have a different just have a different vibe. You know, we talked a lot about with Jessica Jones about. Um, the the role of the woman in that that series and and how it approached that and and those issues and and it was amazing in how it did that and Daredevil is just a badass show like the fight choreography and the and the noir and and the and the way that they do a lot of stuff in that show is freaking badass but what Luke Cage does in 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 pushing that mission uh, across the the thirteen episodes uh, it just does it in a way that is so unlike anything that we've seen. Um, and the thing I loved about it is that the angle that runs through it, and, and Steve, it kind of plays off some of the ideas you're talking about with, you know, Luke and, and, and who he is and trying to find himself. But that concept of the, the new Harlem Renaissance that runs through the show, right? It's, it's a, it's a political thing in the show. And there's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a piece of the plot but as a concept, what are we getting at? And, and, and I think part of what this show does and is so open about doing is, is exploring blackness, right? And exploring what that means, not just in Harlem, but as a, as a community. And the way that that community plays into this, into this show and the way that these characters negotiate and discuss and, and, and meditate over what it means to be black and what it means by extension to be who they are and who they want to be going forward, I think is what makes Luke Cage such a good show because it is a superhero show. But part of the reason why superhero stories are so good is because it's really about, it's about self-definition and self-actualization. And when you couch that in an Afro-American narrative, it just adds a, a, another it, it, it adds another layer and another opportunity, another lens to explore that history, um, and the way that they talk about hip hop and the way that they talk about how things used to be and how it is now and what kids on the street are doing today and what kids used to do then and and how you know pop talks about that in the first few episodes and how you know the role of the barbershop and his barbershop in 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 raising the kids on the street like there is an immediacy to that story that daredevil repainting hell's kitchen as this kind of crime ridden place doesn't necessarily have that immediacy because i go to hell's kitchen right now and i'm gonna get some of the best food i ever had in my life right like that's just that's <laughs> that's what hell's kitchen is now it's, it doesn't necessarily still have that same connotation but harlem and and especially kind of uptown like there are areas that do and the fact that that coker and the and the cast and the crew and the writers we're willing to explore that and make that real. That's what Marvel always did best, you know? And I think Luke Cage is the first one that's really, really doing that. Um, Jessica Jones had its own narrative and its own themes and its own questions. And it, it totally nailed that too. It's a different conversation, but Luke Cage grounding it in Harlem, the way that it did, it just has this different vibe to it. And it has this, this authenticity to it that, this didn't have to be a superhero show to still hit the way that it hits. Um, and, and I've been reading a lot uh, um, and following uh, Nerds of Color on Twitter. 
and and reading their articles and they're doing amazing work like they they posted a list earlier today of like movies and books and albums you have to listen to as like a addendum to watching Luke Cage like a kind of like a cultural <laughs> so cool. list it's so good nerds of color um it's they're doing such great work over there and i was just so fascinated by the way that that the the show played out the twists that it took i do think as i think about all of the netflix shows it should be a 10 issue 10 episode series i feel like they could cut down just like 15 seconds off of every scene and save us a couple episodes i feel like 13 for every single one so far i feel like they they've just gone just a little bit too meandering at points um and like you said, Steve, I think some of the writing here and there was a little, little rough. But but the the charisma of the cast, the dynamic music, the way the the Method Man scene in in episode twelve or eleven is like the best scene in all of television <laughs> I have ever seen. Like it's just so good. But uh, yeah, I, it was just astounding. Um, and like and like you said, Steve, I think it's definitely. Um, Jessica Jones and Luke Cage right now are depending on on what minute of what day are wavering for my favorite between the the four seasons that have come out. Yeah, I, just to piggyback off both of you, same points, same things I love about both of them. But I think what Luke Cage does that Jessica Jones did as well is open the door for that um, teaching moments for people who are outside of the culture. Like for Jessica Jones, it did it with feminist um, politics. And talking about the role of women in media and, and things like that. And Luke Cage, from what I'm seeing on Twitter, is opening the door for conversations about what it means to be black and what it means to be black portrayed on television. Yeah. And I've seen both positive and negative responses to Luke Cage. Um, so I think it's, to me, it's really valuable to go and listen to other people's opinions on this, especially people who are of the same ethnicity or race or, or gender or whatever of the characters that they're trying to portray on screen. So yeah. uh, I, th- I think it's very important to be open to to listening to others, even if you don't agree with their viewpoints. Yeah, and like Jessica Jones, I mean, Luke Cage doesn't give you an easy answer. And I don't think the characters in Luke Cage know either. You know, right. when they talk about a new a new Harlem and things, like they're trying to negotiate that and figure that out for themselves. Mm-hmm. And that's a, that's a recognition of the complexity of culture and the complexity of identity that I think a lot of times in media particularly you don't see, right? right. Like blackness is this, yellowness is this, you know, whiteness is this, brownness is this. Like you have those stereotypes and you have those characters in media. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think what Luke Cage does so well is it acknowledges and openly discusses the diversity within, uh-huh. which I think is very important. Yes. So I think overall, the, those of us who have started to watch the show um, and finish it as well, I mean, thumbs up. This is a great series. Um, I think we'll dive into it more in depth at a later time just to give our listeners more time to to watch the show and, and really appreciate it for, for what it is. And also because we just don't have enough time today to to really pull it apart and and talk about certain scenes and and things like that. So hopefully look forward to that conversation later. Um, But just know that, you know, we're all on the same page. This is, this is a fun, good series. 
Um, and it's got me more interested in the character himself. Mm-hmm. In fact, Marvel Unlimited is, you know, they pull together issues of, you know, essential Power Man comics to read and, and things like that. So, yeah. Kudos Pul- to Marvel Unlimited. Pulse. Read the pulse. It's like alias light. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Which is really disappointing to read after you read alias. I know. I was like, alias is <laughs> badass. And then I, I, I started reading pulse and I was like, where are the F words? Like, it just didn't, it didn't like line up for me. <laughs> But uh, the Luke Cage, Jessica Jones stuff um, has really been one of the best parts of the of the last decade of Marvel stories, and yeah. uh, that they're so they're so dedicated to maintaining that relationship and mm-hmm. and and putting that out there is is really great to see. Yeah, awesome. Well, let's move on to Wonder Woman because it's been a while since we've talked about her. I think. <laughs> <laughs> so, Bob, why don't you tell us about um, issue number seven that just came oh. out? Okay. Issue number seven, again, we are still in the back and forth. So this is in the present day, and it's lies. Diana is on a rescue mission. Steve Trevor has been captured by the hideous forces of the god Earth Cartaga. Nice. You got it. No, that's it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And... Playing off the end of the of the last issue in this run, which was five, where Diana comes and rescues the others, the, the girls involved. The art by Liam Sharp is simply incredible. Uh, Two-page spreads of just glorious, glorious stuff. The colors, and the colors are by... Is it Laura, Laura Martin? Laura Martin, Martin I believe. Yeah. Yes. Extraordinaire. Uh, Colorist st- extraordinaire. St- st- yeah. St- st- just stupendous. For me, the, the highlight of the issue is is the stuff with the cheetah, with mm-hmm. Barbara Barbara Ann or Ann as she calls her, as this was Wonder Woman's arch enemy for all these years, and at some level has been in whatever the changes have come here, but Diana is still going to try to make amends and and do the thing that will bring her back her humanity. And the the battle sequences. With. It, it, Wonder Woman is still trying to. I don't need to necessarily mash you up really badly, but if I have to, I can. Yes. <laughs> and she does. But where it comes down to is it's her ability to have others listen to what she's saying, band together as a force for a, a better world and, and, and goodness and a, a better inner person from everyone. And as I don't want to spoil, I'm trying to do this without spoiling the ending. Needless to say, th- there's a, there's sort of a happy ending, and yet it's it's for me it was completely tear-inducing. The last couple of pages, seeing yeah. where we where we end up. Who who wants to go next before I get get spoilery? I, I will say this: there is a moment of somewhat vegetative injustice flashbacks yeah, for me. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> But it was not unwarranted. It was not unwarranted. (laughs) Just watching (laughs) Diana come in swinging, but it's not Swamp Thing she's swinging against. It's an actual bad guy. (laughs) (laughs) It was a pretty epic moment, too. It wasn't just like a non sequitur about vegetative injustice. (laughs) She normally likes to give three warnings. Yeah. I'll tell you though, this and she just the, swings in, concerned yeah. and given. <laughs> the uh, the design for this Urskataga uh, character is pretty wicked. 
Yeah. It Very looks like uh, it looks like if Swamp Thing wandered into the Diablo universe, <laughs> came out the other side. Huh. Mm. I, Pretty, I play I play a lot of Diablo, so I don't play Diablo, so I'll take your word for it. <laughs> but it does look hideous. There's even this cool uh in the artwork, uh kind of Wonder Woman with all of these, uh, they were hostages, all these little girls and, and women gathered around her with uh, this tree, like this multi-branched, crazy-looking tree in the back. I can't help but feel like there's some, like, Mother Earth uh, Gaia, Gaia symbolism yes. going on right there. Oh, uh, and then that, those, uh, those first couple panels where, like, the entire page is... Uh, you're inside of the wooden cage that is con- uh, yep. containing the women, and it zooms in panel by panel on this little girl's face. And as you zoom in, you actually see the action happening through the reflection in her pupils. What? <laughs> Just yeah. so neat, so um, neat, like so so cool. Yeah, I, like I don't, I don't want to blaspheme or anything here about Wonder Woman, but. Uh, this issue was the first time where I kind of felt in the seven issues so far, I kind of felt like I kind of want the other story than versus this one. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It was just, there was something about um, perhaps it, it just felt like they stretched this arc and this resolution to fit these pages. And I was like, I can't wait till next issue where I get that other story that I'm really loving a lot. And this one I've kind of just been enjoying and this was the first one where I kind of just felt like, all right, good, that's done. Let's let's go back to the next thing and and mm-hmm. what the next kind of uh, dual dual story is going to be. I think it was just something with the 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 actual dialogue itself, not necessarily the sequence of it, but I just like I feel like fifteen characters in here said about fifteen times, "Get the girls to safety." Like it just like kept <laughs> it just kept coming up, and I was like, I feel like I feel like we could have done with. A couple extra, a couple less pages here, but yeah. it's still an amazing book. And and to say like this was the first time where I kind of wanted the other one is is not saying that it was bad, but just kind of saying like I'm starting to feel that fatigue, and I'm kind <laughs> of glad that this arc has reached its ending so that we can move on to something else. I just feel like reading it every other week and getting these stories every other week has been like it has felt longer than it is, if that makes sense. It's okay, Joey. We could just edit you out later. Yeah, not yeah, to not yeah. to blaspheme, but <laughs> <laughs> I want to roll um, away now. What I what I do like about the dual stories going on at the same time is how they kind of overlap with one another. As we see Diana build a relationship with Barbara Ann in the past, and then seeing that relationship how it ended up in the the present, uh, I that's what I really like. And you know, mm-hmm. even though there is a preference for the year one story at this time because I mean both both arcs are really good but the year one is something that I needed right at this I mean after yeah after the past couple years I need something like that Mm -hmm. um so it's it's been really refreshing and scratching that Wonder Woman itch I've had but seeing how you can take that and move forward with it and and bring all that goodness from year one and all those relationships that are being formed and put them in our present-day Wonder Woman story gives me a lot of hope for the direction that Rucka has for the character, and hopefully whoever writes after after um, he's done, that they'll continue with with that type of attitude. Right. Amen. I think. I mean. I, I hear. I definitely hear a little bit of what Joey's saying. I mean, for me, right. the the focal point 
of this, or the, my biggest takeaway from from the lies storyline, is the stuff between Wonder Woman and Cheetah. Like mm-hmm. that's what I'm kind of waiting for. Like the Urs Kartaga stuff and uh, the hostages and everything and the vegetative injustice. As much as that's been a part of the story, that's been kind of like the background noise for me in this. Mm-hmm. Like the the conversations happening between uh, Barbara and Diana have have been the meat and potatoes of this and those you know those tender moments and kind of the the mending of friendships and and learning to trust your enemy and and so on and so forth um but i mean some cool action sequences as far as like from this run getting to see wonder woman do her thing uh you do get a good display of powers but you she's diplomatic mostly like before the fisticuffs like we didn't really get too much action from her until this issue. Am I am I wrong? That's right. not, not a whole no. whole lot. I mean, she was fighting the the werewolf guys. Yeah, but yeah, I suppose not, not that's to this true. scale. Not this scale, though. Right. So it's been mostly about the journey, and now you have this this issue where she is fighting and throwing down and everything, and it's all that classic Wonder Woman stuff you want. But at least she's throwing punches that are that look good on the page and aren't you know made of cheesecake. Yes. To a degree. Oh so. wow! Oh, hey. Sometimes, um, sometimes cheesecake is very tasty, but only if it's Bob's. Oh, yes, you. yes. Jesus Christ! What, what I think is really important about the action sequences in this one is that she's not fighting with a sword. Yeah. Which sometimes you get sick and tired of seeing Wonder Woman with a sword. You just want to see her with her, her bracelets and her her lasso. You know, things to to subdue people. Exactly. Um, and so that's that's what she fights here. She's you know she's punching and things like that. But the ultimate thing she uses to take down her enemy is the truth, right? And not just her, but all the women who are there as well, including Barbara Ann. Right. I was like, ah, oh, that's amazing. You know, she's not chopping and slicing. She's not um, you know being overly aggressive. She's relying back on um, those foundations of Wonder Woman where you subdue your enemy. And mm-hmm. what, what the re- resolution here is, to me, a lot more powerful than if she just, like, chopped off his head and right. moved on. So. And issue eight is a cheetah origin story. Sweet. Yeah. I'm excited about that. Um, I guess. together. Yeah, I guess that this would be a good time to mention that uh, uh, Diana is not straight. <laughs> <laughs> Surprise. She's queer. Wow. To no one. <laughs> um. But yeah, Greg Rucka did an interview where he he's like, um, yeah, she's she's queer. You know, look look yeah. at her history. Look at where she grew up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that turned into some interesting debates here and there from people who never read a comic book. Yeah. I saw yeah. one person in particular going back and forth with Gail Simone. It was incredible <laughs> the, the depths of dickishness that were coming from his side of the story were were I mean the level knows knows no bounds mm-hmm. you know it, it was so deep and I, I couldn't believe she sometimes she snarks in and she plays with people she bats them around like a cat bats around a toy and I just love it <laughs> I love it because she that's the thing she uses and this is this was in this instance which she was using his own words against him just flipping the table every time he came back with something she would flip it on him and be like well if that's true then this and i'm like oh my god like i love you right now i love you so much this is so good so good she did a uh, a tweet where it was like 
I'll stop, or we'll stop sexualizing Wonder Woman when you stop sexualizing Wonder Woman. And it was pictures of Mike Diodato's artwork oh. from, from his run, like, back in the 90s. And I was like, wow, that Damn. is awesome. I don't know. <laughs> I just, I saw that headline, and it was, like, the most not headline headline ever. Yeah. Like, you know, like, surprise, surprise, Wonder Woman, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, Really? Um, Anyone ever yeah, think yeah, the about last who lives on years, Paradise Island? Yeah, the last that abundantly clear, yeah. unless you haven't been paying attention. I just, <laughs> I don't, it's amazing. We live in a very interesting time where people rage out about the strangest of things. Yeah. Well, you know, it's here, it, we go back, and you know, we've talked about this character a lot over over the years here, and as Mara's writing a book, <laughs> this topic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dr. Yeah. Marston put all these things into play, but wasn't really allowed to actually say the things that could be said today or show some of them. He could hint at it, and he hinted a lot of things. And it was picked up by some people. Dr. Frederick Wortham, who wrote Seduction of the Innocent, called the book out for, well, look at all the lesbianism in this book and look at all this terrible stuff. And when the book reconvened in, in the later 50s, it was shorn of everything. Every positive message it could have had, any inkling of Diana being the hero she had been before, and she was a hero to everyone, it was not good. It's boring. Yeah. Amoeba Man and Merman and all this stupid Wonder Tot stuff. And <laughs> Amoeba Man. <laughs> Amoeba Man. I'm not making this up. She nearly married Amoeba Man. <sighs> nice. Amoeba Man. Wasn't he from space as well? Like an Amoeba. Was he from space as well? Yes, of course he's yeah. from space. Yeah. Yeah. Amoeba man from space. Did she split the amoeba with a karate chop? <laughs> <laughs> and in that bed was, life? That was, <laughs> a little later when she, they took away her powers just for fun, too. Nice. Yeah. So, so all these things that were part of the character that it's so surprising to folks. It really is, uh, it really is fascinating. Read hmm. a book. Read, yeah. right there. <laughs> it's right there. <laughs> Read, Read a love it. book. Read a book. Amazing. I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, it's just like that's you know, the new get, sign off. <laughs> yeah. Read a book. People get so judgy and up at arms about things. And we do it too. I mean, we see a trailer and we're like, oh. Um, but in this Never. case, there's like Never. 75 yeah. years of publication history that says one thing and you completely reject it because you, have, because. you just haven't read it. Yeah. Captain America's Hydra now. Yeah. Uh, well, I'll, let, me, I'll, let me turn this. I'm going to turn this around and get us some bad mail. The, the, okay. The, the, probably the same people who are now complaining about, you know, you know, not having read the 75 years of Wonder Woman's history and how could this be, are the same people who didn't read 75 years of Superman, and thought it was okay for him to break General Zod's neck. Damn, girl. Mm. You know, open up those floodgates right now. Yeah. <laughs> mm. My email address is <laughs> Steve Say at the... Bring them on. Bring them on. I'll respond to every one of them. Yeah. So, I'll respond with, Bob said it, not me. <laughs> so that was, that was the, the individual issue that came out this week. But we also had a graphic novel come out this past week. Wonder Woman, The True Amazon by Jill Thompson. What? And, yeah. Yes. Oh, like, this that's is... why I couldn't find this thing. It's because it was a graphic novel? Are you kidding me? Yes. Steve, this thing it's is okay, man. I, I didn't read it either. It's okay. No, no. I'm looking. Bob has it. It's beautiful. The yeah, artwork like in it a... is really intense. 
Like she did it. Like this is Jill Thompson, one hundred percent. Yo, yeah. she's got to have this at her table. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm buying this. Um, Where'd so, you guys? Um, how'd you guys get it? If you don't mind me asking, like, was it at the shop? Was it? Did you right, order it before? Comic store. I pre-ordered. Uh, Tur- yeah. It turns out I thought I hadn't, but I had. Hey. <laughs> yeah. Past Bob knew what he wanted. Yes. Okay. Hold on. <laughs> All a right. I gotta get Just that. One quick comment. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. How is it that Wonder Woman even kind of looks a little bit like Jill Thompson? <laughs> she, <I> think, <laughs> Why not? She I is mean, totally projecting herself it. onto her characters <laughs> isn't so that, much. Isn't that, I project myself onto Wonder Woman. You don't do that, Steve. <laughs> well, no, if you really right, want to get deep, yeah. Joey. It does look like her. Yo, there's there's so one cool. panel in the back that really yeah. looks like her so much. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. Doesn't Jill Thompson have curly hair? Oh yes, yeah. she does. Could she, she get Wonder Woman curly hair? Yeah. Well, you know, so did uh, so did George Perez and John Byrne. So yeah, that, you know. I love yeah. it. The, I love it. There's precedent for that. There's precedent oh, for that. Oh yeah, just, I'm just asking. So this this graphic novel by Jill Thompson, she wrote it, she drew it, she colored it. It's done in watercolors. Oh my um, god. The subtitle is The True Amazon, and it's another Wonder Woman origin story. But what really struck me about this one is um, it came at the perfect time. And I say that because we had um, we had Legend of Wonder Woman, which is really fantastic. And we're getting year one right now, and we had Earth One. So we've had a lot of um, variations, two of them being pretty similar in, in tone, one of them kind of being a little bit more out there. Yeah. Um, so it would have been really redundant to get a Wonder Woman origin story that was exactly the same. And so, like I said, this one for me came at the, the perfect time because it shows a Wonder Woman as a child who acts like an actual child yes. raised by people who are bending over backwards to spoil her. Wow. Um, right. so she's this such is... a prodigy, right, that they have to <laughs> – everything you do is wonderful, even when she's a little brat. Yes. So this this is the perfect child reaction to being treated like a princess the, and the only child on an island full of women who worship and adore her. Um, she's I mean, she's a blessed person. I mean, she's she's got, you know, these these abilities and gifts and is is loved and, and doted on. But it's she feeds off that attention so much. And I'm like, oh, man, this is every kid I know. This is <laughs> this is. This is a true child picture. Um, and so you, you kind of almost grow to dislike her in the beginning because she is a spoiled brat. And you're like, okay, she's got to learn something. We, we got to get something in here to change her into the Amazon we know. And it comes in the form of a person who doesn't pay attention to her. Someone who is not um, enticed by royalty or gifts or luxuries and things like that and that kind of makes diana question who is this person and why isn't she in love with me why isn't she paying attention to me um so it to me this graphic novel is a really good coming of age story and one that i think can be used in therapeutic settings by showing you know to a kid this is what you act like this is this is you right here. Look and look what brat. happens. And look what happens when you do that. Yes, yes. Um, so Bob, did you did you read through all of it? Yes, I did. And it is just you're saying it's the perfect time for this because a few years ago, if this had come out, it wouldn't have played in the same way to the same sort of heartstrings in the audience. Mm-hmm. Because we're, we're, people are now ready to accept 
a Wonder Woman from the standpoint, in this case, of it's a lovely blend of a lot of Dr. Marston and the mythological aspects that we saw a lot of with George Perez and Phil Jimenez. Mm-hmm. And it's this loving society. It's, it's created slightly differently, but just enough nods to everything else. We get it's the Heracles story, but it's it's played differently mm-hmm. as as they get they get to move off on their own. They are just a loving, wonderful society. And the fly in the ointment here, even though there's a beautiful sequence as Diana is born, where it's it's literally uh, the, it's the lullaby that Hippolyta is singing in her longing to have a child that eventually all the Amazons sing and their chorus reaches the ears of the gods and they weep for Hippolyta and their tears bring the clay baby to life. What? That's so cool, yeah. though. Yes. I mean, it, it's, so just, cool. it's just beautifully, beautifully done. Totally touching. And then, we, as we segue into bratty Diana growing up, it's hysterically funny. And then it starts to be sad. And then mm-hmm. you're angry at her. It's like you're not the you're not Diana. Why are you acting like this? Because she's real. Right. Yeah. And in this situation, it plays out so wonderfully. And Alethea is such a great character because she's she does want to like Diana, but she just can't really stand her. <laughs> so she 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 hear she listens to hear her come to the stables to to try to fawn all over her to get Alethea, Alethea to pay attention. We eventually get to a version of the Contest of Champions. In this case, it's the Commemoration of Warriors. And that goes very badly. Mm-hmm. And the message about responsibility and consequences is a, is a harsh one. Won't say much more to our two colleagues who haven't read it yet, but this is a book definitely worth picking up. It is a wonderful production. The book is, is glorious. In the way it looks, and, and, and the painted cover, the interior pages are lovely. There are sketches at the end. There's a lot of really good stuff here. And Jill Thompson, who did such great work on Wonder Woman back in the uh, George Perez days, knocked it out of the park again. Mm-hmm. Damn, I have two observations. I have two yeah. observations about this. Okay. One, the graphic novel category for this year's awards is filling up quick. <laughs> yes. uh, and two. We're probably only going to be able to choose one Wonder Woman origin story. So which one will it Why be? Why don't we make a category for the best Wonder Woman origin story? <laughs> hey, I, I, am not, I am not standing for what happened to me some years ago on an award show where I couldn't have two Fantastic Four books. If I want to oh, have snap. three Wonder Woman books, for I'm the record, For the record, who backed you up? Who backed you up that you year? You did, of course. That's right. <laughs> can, I ask you, can I ask you guys something, Mara and, and Bob? Um, yeah. Why... Do you think in the last year, couple of years, uh, we keep going back to these, not Wonder Woman in the current continuity storylines, but the best stuff is coming from these kind of reimaginings or re-envisionings or, or going back to the origins of the Wonder Woman character? I think part of it is that, you know, we're approaching 75 years, mm-hmm. you know, we're 75th anniversaries now. Um, and people are probably realizing, oh, well, you know, maybe we should do something special or maybe we should revisit. And there's always been that argument that you can't do Wonder Woman origin story. It's too rough. It's too hard to do. Yeah. Um, and just read it. 
I mean, it's not that difficult to to comprehend. And you know, I've read the original origin story. I've read um, different iterations of it over time, and so has Bob. It's not a difficult concept to um, to talk about or to portray or to understand or anything like that. But for me, I do appreciate that these creators are trying to bring it back to the audience again. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, every time it's a little bit different, but that's okay. Cause you know, that's Superman or origin story changes slightly. And so does Batman's and, and really any comic book character. It gets modified mm-hmm. for the current audience, but as long as it has those same elements, um, you know, that the mascara and the mother who wants the, the baby so bad. And then, you know, the contest and, and departing from, from paradise, um, you know, if an origin story has those elements, then it's it's a true Wonder Woman origin. Mm. Bob? And what it is to me, all those things you say are absolutely true, and I'm mad you said them before I did. But <laughs> Sorry. Besides, that, besides that, as in those other characters you mentioned, and certainly Spider-Man's in that, in that group too, Captain America, I suppose, mm-hmm. when the origins are so perfectly done the first time around, when there's so much right that returning to those origins makes us all feel warm and fuzzy and it's yes this is what comics were like this is how they can be there's something primal and in this case very poignant about this story particularly but it's why superman's origin you can it's like jazz there's the head arrangement and there's the middle thing that you can interpret and ad lib a little bit but it's <laughs> and then, it's in the it's, fake book right but it's what's what works it's batman's parents it's krypton yeah. exploding it's with great power must also come great responsibility mm-hmm. those things work and resonate i was just gonna say that word yeah resonate they're, qu- they're, they're oh go ahead bar oh I was, I was saying resonate yeah yeah i mean That's they're good. They're classics for a reason, mm-hmm. right? right? Like these these stories have spurned so many others because the foundations were so solid, right? It's like having fine wine as opposed to a you know brand new bottle of table wine. You know, you order one from the back or like a nice bourbon mm-hmm. that's been aged in the oak cask for you know two hundred years and made by monks and God knows where. <laughs> you know, <laughs> on the moon. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The blue area of the moon. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that's interesting. Just because, like, I feel like the last year, especially with Legend of Wonder Woman and the bombshell stuff, and yeah, and and the the new run with Rucka two and this graphic novel you're talking about, I feel like we often talk. And there was obviously year one, Earth one happened too. Remember that? Mm-hmm. That was a classic. Yeah. yeah. But you know, I just feel like whenever we talk about Wonder Woman, it's always in the context of this origin or some variation thereof. And I suppose it's the same thing with you, Bob, you mentioned Captain America before too, right? This question of like the best cap stories are the ones that have some element of that history in them. Um, and, and maybe that's, that's why too coming into this. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. Well, Bob and I recommend it. Yes. Y'all that should, should uh... be good enough for everybody. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So we've got, we've got two more comics for open discussion, um, let's start with Spider Woman number eleven. And I think Ooh. I told Steve he could spearhead that one. Go, Steve! You got it, Steve. Oh man, I do. No, no, I'm fine. I I thought we were wrapping it up. I, that totally felt like a capper 
<laughs> to me, but but we can go on. Um, yeah, I you know we talked a little bit earlier about stuff going on with Captain Marvel and the tie-ins for Civil War Two and so on and so forth. Uh, here's the thing: talking about books that are consistently good, like Wonder Woman, that we do is a necessity. Shut up, alarm! Thank you very much. Um, and uh, the Spider Woman run has been phenomenal. Uh, 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 mm-hmm. the, the writing on this has been great. The pregnancy arc turned out to be some of the best stuff or some of my favorite stuff of the year. Uh, just a stellar, stellar run. And what you have here is just another great issue kind of getting into the nitty gritty where you have Jessica, you know, hearing the news about the Hulk. Uh, spoilers for people that are not reading Civil War Two, but something has happened to the Hulk and Jessica is upset and uh, you have this really, really tender scene that the writing and the playfulness in this scene between Jessica talking with Bruce and her reminding him of stuff that happened in Avengers Assemble. Hulk make when me a Hulk sandwich. Hulk make me a sandwich. <laughs> the callback to that for anybody that's read that was so delicious. Yeah. I was yes. like, yeah, that's so good. Uh, so there's this cute little scene between them and Jessica kind of making him nervous and being a little flirty with him and whatever. And you just, you get this in just two pages, this incredible friendship that is so, so present in these pages. And then right after that, they literally artfully slam you with the reality of what's going on now. And then there's like shattered panels. And I love, I love the, the repetition of stuff breaking and it's uh you know it's like an artful metaphor for what's happening or a parallel for what's happening inside of Jessica's heart and soul right now for this friend that she has lost and so her idea is to go and talk to Clint and find out what the hell happened cuz he played a role in this whole thing and he's being held uh you know with uh Captain Marvel's keeping him in a cell and whatever and it's time to go and get some answers and before Jessica can get to him, she runs into a different situation. I won't spoil too much for the issue, but suffice to say, there is a very deep and necessary conversation that happens between uh, two characters. It doesn't end quite the way you think that it would. You know, you, you think that there's going to be this sweet little moment of forgiveness, and no. Cut, cut to the quick, harumph. It, yeah, rump indeed, Humph. and it, it's a it's a friendship that goes back many many years in these books. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned Avengers Assemble was highlighted in those books and in the uh, what was the event back the Infinity, yeah, mm-hmm. when those crossovers, and it's completely warranted though. I just with this like you have Jessica who can't even stand to look her in the face right now, Ms. Marvel who she idolized. This is this is Captain Marvel. This is Carol yeah. Danvers. I wear your, your colors, colors, your stuff. And they're both they both want like nothing to do with her right now. And like I said earlier in the show, like, I am so involved in that aspect of it because I I love all of these characters. I feel for all of these characters and to see them at odds, they're they're doing it really well. These the writers that are writing these right. moments with these characters. Dennis, Dennis hopeless. Yeah, doing Spider Woman, and he's been, as you say, awesome on this. Yeah, and G Willow Wilson handling stuff over him as Marvel. Uh, it hurts, like as as somebody who who really cares for these characters, watching them. It's like watching your your best friends to, to your best friends. They something happened, 
and they just one of them can't get over it. Both of them can't get over it, and they refuse to see reason. I'm going to say yeah. something that I, I look. It's an extrapolation. It is a guess, but I'm going to tell you that Al Ewing and Dennis Hopeless and G Willow Wilson and Kelly Thompson over in A Force. They all love Carol Danvers and Captain Marvel as much as we do. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I think they feel the same way. Yeah. And this is yeah. their way of addressing what they're not liking either. They're doing yeah, a great sh job. Showing that heartbreak, you know, yeah. heartbreak with the character, that disappointment with the character through the characters that they're writing. Yeah. Well, meta. Yeah. Meta. And by the way, from now on, uh, it is right here in all caps. I am going to use the BAH, spelled B A G H. <laughs> I've never seen it that's, like that. That's and extra that's, bah. Oh, it's amazing. I'm, I'm totally, I'm totally lifting. It's taking that. over for Harumph. I think I might have to, considering that I don't know what Harumph has really meant for the past <laughs> ten years. <laughs> <laughs> I use it all the time. I, I apply it to everything, and then I found out that it's negative, and now I feel bad for all the people all that good. I've that I've harumphed in the past. It's all good. <laughs> it's all good. Mass tweet. <laughs> Sorry for the harumph. Hashtag harumph. <laughs> <laughs> so the other book that you guys had mentioned just briefly, um, Ms. Marvel number 11. Mm. Um, Bob, do you want to go into that a little bit? Oh, tears. Tears, so many, lots so of tears, tears, lots of tears. It's one of the sad things. There's just so much sadness in the Marvel universe right now. But this one by G. Willow Wilson, Takeshi Miyazawa, and Adrian Alfana, Picking up from the end of the latest issue, Bruno, her, her best friend and superhero confidant, has been very badly hurt due to trying to spring one of their people from the clutches of, you know, Judge Dread Barbie, as she's called in this issue. <laughs> basic and, Becky. Yeah, Basic Becky, who is part of the Kamala cadets. And Kamala needs to have a talk with her, needs to put a stop to her because she's describing it now as pre uh, predictive injustice <laughs> as all these sorts of people are getting pulled into into custody for no particularly good reasons so she makes uh, Kamala makes an interesting choice in that she goes back to someone she went after the first time around the Canadian terrorist supervillain hijinks <laughs> and, and his team of ninjas and we end up with a setup to try to have a confrontation that leads to another confrontation and that's between Carol and Kamala in the middle of a junkyard being not supposed to be blown up but a little bit blown up just a little just a, just a little and Becky shows up you know because of you know Ulysses visions and so on and it's you're going to as she says to, to Becky says to Kamala you're going to get what you, you get what you deserve just like your friend Bruno. Ooh. Oh, no. snap. Yeah, you, you just Below don't the say belt. that. And then Carol shows up, and we have some more of these moments. And it is, you talk about heart-wrenching, two, three-page spread here, is these two characters who meant so much to each other. You remember Carol calling her junior here and there. Yeah. And obviously, Kamala's taken this name and, and these colors. And there's one panel here I'm looking at that, that marked for myself where Carol's sort of calling her out because Kamala said something bad. I don't want to spoil the line, but Kamala, head down, eyes closed, hand to her head, 
it's it's awful. It's just absolutely awful. It's gorgeous and it's perfect, but it's awful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's just an amazing book. What's everyone else's take as we're going here? Joey? Uh, all the same. It was heartbreaking, yeah. especially the final scenes with Bruno yeah. in the hospital. It's just, yeah. just painful, uh, especially considering, like, this it, This is still a, a new-ish story. You know, mm-hmm. we've only had Kamala for, what, two years, three years, mm-hmm. about, maybe yeah, two and a half, that. you know? So I just, like, I flashed back to the end of the last volume. And those scenes with, with, with Bruno at the end of that one. And then here we are now at this ending um, before the next trajectory or, or whatever's coming. And, uh, like, the arc that Kamala has gone, not just in this new volume, but in, across these two, is has been so wonderful. And to watch that evolution and to watch her come into, just given the circumstances now, coming into her own, really. Um, and kind of freeing herself and moving away from that person that that she idolized before um that's a big step for any person to take and and it's unfortunate that she has to take it granted but mm-hmm. but i think there is the potential for something really interesting down the line and i, I i'm so excited every time this book comes out because because of things like this because it feels authentic and it feels sincere and it feels real and and when when we talk about like getting emotional over things in these books, like this book does it and it does it beautifully. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's just been one of the best for its, its short lived, its short life so far. And I hope it has a really long life coming this, this Miss Marvel arc and character. I mean, I tell you what, I'm looking forward to Carol's redemption arc. In Miss in, in Marvel by G. Will Marvel. Wilson. Yes. Wilson. Yeah. It's gotta happen. It's gotta happen. Uh, Steve, did you read this issue? I did indeed. What'd you think? Toronto hard style maple leaf formation. Hell to the yes. <laughs> That's all I got. That's all I got. It was wonderful. You guys you guys pretty much said everything. Ms. Um, Marvel continues to be stellar. It has since issue number one. I will. This is another book that once it's announced that G. Will Wilson is parting from the character and giving the reins to somebody else, I will weep. Yeah. Yes, I will. Yeah. I will weep because it's just been such a such a refreshing pleasure of a book to read, and uh, there's some really hard hitting stuff going on uh, throughout the series. And it's there are books that are entertaining, and then there are books that feel important to me. And this has felt important from the beginning, and I'm just so stoked the to have such a like a solid foundation and a, 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 a legacy character in the making. Or, or not even in the making, has arrived. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I'm, wait, I'm waiting for that Miss Marvel Netflix series, yo. I'm like, it's got to come. I'm like, Luke Cage did Harlem so good. Let me get that Miss Marvel Jersey City. Let me get that right now. <laughs> I think down the road I've we'll heard see it. rumors. Yeah. It, it could happen. I it would die. Happen. I would die. <laughs> they, they filmed right on my block. Grove Street is like right here. It's right on my corner. <laughs> Mara, how about you? Um, I, I did enjoy it. I think, you know, like everyone has been saying, that the tie-ins to Civil War II are the ones that have the bigger payoff for me than the main series. And, of course, the characters I'm most invested in in the Marvel Universe are um, Miss Marvel and Spider-Woman and the characters in the Ultimates and um, 
those those types of fringe more fringe characters so i'm glad that somebody is standing up to carol someone's communicating to her why she's wrong and being an advocate for themselves in their own book so i'm, I'm really looking forward to the direction kamala is going to be going and again like i said I'm, I'm waiting for that redemption arc i'm waiting for these two women to sit down later and have a heart to heart and talk about what's happening right now or you know at that time what had happened and how they can still have that mentor-mentee relationship going forward so just made me just made me wish for something else something post-civil war ii well post-civil war ii is sadly divided we stand i know i know i I will say that post-civil war ii starts today despite the fact that the events has not (laughs) ended yet so well, keep like an eye champions. out for champions, Jessica Jones, uh, something else. I can't Death remember. Death of X. Death of X yes. is coming out. Yeah. yeah, it's super cool. The future um, is now. Yeah, the future is now, even though it hasn't arrived yet. Yeah. Um, I hope that all those books are still coming out today because they're awesome and I really want to read them. But there has been no talk about delaying them or, or not releasing mm. them yet. So. I think I think they have my uh, my comic book shop guy was texting me a picture of Jessica Jones interior I'm a, art. I'm, I'm, like, die. I'm, not ready. Wow. I'm not ready for that I'm yet. Die. Stop. I'm, I'm, I'm so excited send, for that book. Send me my book. <laughs> All right. So we, we have a listener question ah. from Amanda McKnight. And hopefully my voice holds out for this. Um, it's allergy season in Arkansas, by the way. I'm not crying. I'm just, I'm just snot girl today. Um, so she sends us an email saying that she's going to New York this week so she sent this to us last week talking about her upcoming trip and uh she is wondering uh if y'all have any recommendations for comic book stores or comic adjacent places she should try to visit while in new york city well well Well. the comic con would be a good start (laughs) and i'm wondering if she's going to the comic con or she's going to be there sometime around then Shirley. I'm, uh, look, I'm sure, sure I, and don't call me Shirley. <laughs> Cer- nice. Certainly, yeah, right, if, if you're in, in Manhattan and you're not going to the con, or you are, you could walk back across 40th Street and there's Midtown Comics, which is a lot of fun. Yeah. But yeah. Steve <laughs> is going to say something else that I'm going to agree wholeheartedly with. Okay. If you want the double whammy, you go over to the address, Bob. Well, it's uh, Broadway and 12th Street. Yes. The Strand Books. Eight miles of books with a great comic and graphic novel Absolutely. Tons and tons. That's where I found Echo for, like, no money whatsoever. Couch change. Uh, The selection is outstanding. And stuff that you wouldn't expect to find, you will find there. Uh, And then there's Forbidden Planet. Which is about a block over on Broadway. Yeah, so a block over. And, like, that's where you'll find all of your kind of knickknacks and statues and uh, ice molds and yeah. comic books. And as stuff. well as all the brand new issues, tons of graphic yes. novels, loads of indie stuff, some really indie stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, dude. And very helpful staff, too. Yes. Awesome. You want to get a little bit hipper, head down to St. Mark's. St. Mark's Comics is pretty awesome, too. And you get some tattoo, and you get some, and you get some tattoos next door too. If you you. Want. <laughs> right? Awesome. Or the, what's that store? Search the store and destroy. Ups, yeah, search go and destroy. Search we can and buy destroy. gas Don't masks go to St. Mark's Comics. Go to search and destroy. No, you don't like St. Mark's Comics? I hate St. Mark's Comics, dude. Wow. Can't stand them. Can't stand them. I don't. Th- Every I don't time I've that ever... I've been, 
yo, every time that I'm in that store, they eyeball me like I'm gonna rob the place every time. <laughs> They're shady I have, character. You gotta I have, check your bags too at that place. Yeah, yeah, you gotta check your, which is fine. Like I, I get it, I get it. You're, you know, you're, you're on a busy, you're in a busy part of the city. People coming in and out. I'm, I have no problem with checking my bag. What I do have a problem with is the the staff not knowing their own inventory and oh, not damn. knowing whether a book came out or not. And then if I ask for something that I can find it before they can. That drives me nuts. And I've been in there three times, and all three times I've been treated like a criminal. And I yeah. don't I don't like it, and I don't like them. And they can listen to this, and they can kiss the whitest uh, part of my ass. Oh, damn, girl. <laughs> used well, to be. yeah. <laughs> Sorry, used Joey. To be, used to be a better better vibe in there. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Has the, have the changes on St. Mark's Place, for those who are not New Yorkers, it was... It was sort of the punk capital of the world in the yeah, dude. 70s. But that also meant that was where Kim's video was and Trash and Vaudeville yeah. and Smash Records and all these things that are now sort of gone. And it's very touristy. And there's a Chipotle on St. Mark's Place. There That's is, true. There is enough cool stuff there that if you're in the area, it's certainly worth going inside and checking out. And go around to the Halloween store. Yeah, go around to the Halloween store. Just don't expect them to roll out the red carpet. No, yeah. they may call the police. <laughs> yeah, but hey, it's New York City. Do you expect them to roll out the red carpet any place? They roll out yes. the red carpet. Yes, at, uh, no, no, no. Oh man. come on, you guys must be royalty, dude. I walk into <laughs> Tiffany's dressed like a ragamuffin, and they treat me like I'm Rockefeller. Here's some breakfast. Okay. <laughs> you should see the way well, we're treated when we go into the uh, Yalgonquin. Yes. Well, they love I mean, us at the you guys own that place. I've That's walked in there practically home. in my pajamas, and they serve me the best chicken and waffles I've ever <laughs> eaten. Wait, and you know where else she should come? She should come to the Beer Authority on Saturday at 8.30, yes. right? Yes. Absolutely. It's the meet and greets, the annual Talking Comics meet and greet. Yes. And, Joey, you'll be there? Hell yes. Uh, Dr. Mara Wood is coming to New York. Yeah, yeah. I'll be there. Yep. <laughs> And Steve will be there too if a bit tardy. Uh, I'm yeah. going to I'm going to try so hard. I, I didn't make it to the one last year. Uh, my schedule is is absolutely insane. I could read some of it to you if you want. I have a lot of things lined up, but I am going to do my absolute best to show up for at least, even if it's just for a half hour, mm-hmm. for a picture. Um, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I think Bob, for I think proof Bobby, that we all exist. Bobby is coming as well. I do believe. Yeah. I've got uh, I got the Iron Fist uh, panel that ends at seven thirty, and then I probably have to get that out. So, however long it takes me to get that organized and out, will be will determine as to whether and when I can. You get can do that. it upstairs at the Beer Authority. Yeah, dude. No, we'll I do cannot. it together. No, I need. I need <laughs> you can, you can go into that quiet bathroom. Yeah. Where, where the uh, attendant is. That, yeah. You're not supposed to tip according to certain comic book authors. I got a, yeah, I got a, I got a whole bunch of the cool stuff lined up. Uh, a couple of interviews, a couple of movie things, a couple of Netflix things. Going to finally find out a bit more about uh, Legion. Very curious okay. about that show. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a Legion thing I got to do. I got to do a Valiant Ninjak thing. Uh, oh, that's Power awesome. Rangers. Uh, what else do I got? 
24 legacy on-camera interviews, Underworld and Resident Evil interviews. So Kate Beckinsale and uh, Milo Jovovic. Luke Besson of The Fifth Element fame, amongst other things, doing oh, a yes. walkthrough of something with him, I guess. Uh, Black Sails cast interviews. I got a whole bunch of crap lined up. But I am going to work my ass off so that I can chill with all of you fine people. Yes. Yes, yes, please. Absolutely. So those those are the uh, talking comics recommendations for places to go in New York that are comic-y. Um, so before we close out, we have an interview, like we mentioned at the top of the show, with Marty Langford that we've already recorded that you'll hear about right now. Um, <laughs> so hopefully you all enjoy it and are as intrigued by this movie and the documentary project as, as we all are. We're very pleased tonight to welcome back Marty Langford, who's the director and driving force behind the documentary film Doom, the untold story of Roger Corman's Fantastic Four, which chronicles the intrigue behind one of Hollywood's legendary lost films, uh, which uh, Roger Corman produced, Ole Sasson directed, and no one ever really saw the right way. Uh, Marty first uh. appeared with us back on issue number 83 in 2013, which was an episode was the first one of our shows to feature both Joey and Mara on the same program. <laughs> what? Uh, oh, yes, you didn't know was. that, that this was like an anniversary? <laughs> <laughs> this is your life. Uh, we were talking about the Brian Wood X-Men series at that point. Mm -hmm. uh, at that point, though, Marty, your, your project was just beginning. So mm. it's just perfect circle closing that we had you at the beginning and now as your film comes out. So... Welcome back to Talking Comics, Marty Langford. Oh, man, thank you so much. Hey, had we uh, done the uh, the Indiegogo uh, campaign at that point, Bob? Do you remember? You had just, you are about halfway through. And uh, it, we, was, we it was challenged. a miserable, miserable failure. Uh, we <laughs> were looking, you know, I've been like doing video and uh, film for a long time, you know, 15, 20 years, and... I kind of knew, like, a number, you know, that we were going for. I had a really sound budget. I spent a lot of time on it, and I was enthusiastic, and I was confident. And we made 10% of what we needed, and it was awful. We made $6,000. <laughs> yeah. We tried. We helped a little. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm a contributor. <laughs> well, that means your that means your name's in the credits then. <laughs> I have to say yes. I I I did see that, and I was very thrilled. Good. <laughs> very nice. So now, congratulations. That now, even after that struggle, the release is upon us. Can you tell us where people can start to see Doomed? Yeah. Well, uh, next Tuesday, October 11th, um, we're on. Goodness, almost. Every video on demand uh, streaming service I, I can I can think of from the cable out uh, outlets to Charter, Xfinity, Comcast, Time Warner, and uh, the, the the satellite networks Dish and Directv and iTunes. Uh, iTunes is cool because uh, they asked for some exclusive content, so we gave them uh, oh. I think it's like five or six different little clips, uh, some of which are very cool. It was neat kind of digging back into you know the uh, the bins after uh you know being done with the movie for probably a year and uh they have some cool stuff on itunes and that's on the 11th and then the dvd and the blu-ray uh, which have their own uh little batches of extras will be out on december 20th nice can't wait after all this time you must feel awfully 
proud to release your project to the world. So, again, I can't say congratulations enough. It's going to say it a oh. lot here. So just just bear <laughs> bear with me. Thank you. Now, although although a lot of people might know the legend behind this lost film. Uh, what's the story behind it, and how did you come to be involved and be so taken with it that you needed to make a movie about it? Yeah, I mean, I had I, I had kind of like two approaches uh, to it. One was that I was, I assume, like uh, the uh, one, two, three, four of you in that I'm a comic book geek and film fan, and uh, I love that mm -hmm. stuff. Costume superheroes were and always have been just a fascination for me. I mean, every every appearance of any character in costume, in live action, I just like had to have, you know, from mm -hmm. from like the power pack pilot to you know, uh, Generation X and Nick Fury and the, you know, just all that stuff. <laughs> and uh, at the same time, uh, my good friend, uh, best friend growing up, Mark Sykes, who I worked at a comic book store with, had moved out to L.A. in the early 90s and interned with Corman at uh, Concord New Horizons. So Mark was the uh, receptionist for Roger as well as the casting assistant on the Fantastic Four. I'm so, sure he did some special effects and <laughs> some other things, oh, too, knowing Roger Corman. Geez. Yeah, right, exactly. Well, you saw the documentary, right, Bob? Yep, yep. So you saw the bit where Mark reveals that he was uh, at one point in the costume uh, to the surprise of, gosh, everybody on set that yes. day. That was that was great. So Mark, um, you know, was involved. Uh, he was busy, though, and communication, as it was back then without the Internet, was, you know, sporadic. So mm -hmm. I kept in touch with him, uh, you know, while it was happening, but it was silent, you know. Uh, relatively soon after uh, they wrapped, and that's when this kind of whole mystery began. And I waited 20 years, like to find out exactly what happened. I kept waiting, you know, for the book or the, waiting for the the uh, the documentary to come out. And at one point, back in shortly after we spoke last time, I kind of just decided maybe we should do it ourselves. Now, in that three-year journey between those moments and now. Uh, your quest to fill in, in the gaps had you interviewing practically everyone that had something to do with the film. Uh, were there any surprises in that process? Yeah, I mean, there were little, you know, re revelations uh, here and there. Um, the the uh, the lack of communication we had with uh, kind of the, the big players uh, outside of Roger, which would have been Constantine Films, you know, the German company that, that owned the rights and the... the that started the production and Marvel, uh, specifically Avi Arad, who was in charge at the time and was really interested and invested in bringing Marvel to uh, film and television, uh, were both, you know, their silence was telling. And we got as much information as we could. Uh, before we went on air, uh, Bob, we were talking about the, uh, the LA piece that uh, author Robert Ito had yes. written back in what year was that? 2011, 2012. I think it was 2012. 11, I think. Late, late 11? Okay, sure. Or early, yeah. early 2012, yep. Right. And um, and then, of course, uh, the presence of Stan Lee, who um, we, at one point, were on track to interview, but were uh, lost that opportunity um, when we were going to go to uh, Denver uh, to see him. But uh, kind of at the last minute, they decided they didn't want to speak to us. Um, and, you know, we, we were left with who we have in the dock now. I think we have, uh, you know, I always say I think. I know we have 16 uh, different uh, interview subjects, and it was everybody, you know, pretty much that was involved in the whole project. Uh, they're so engaging, 
Uh, I was particularly taken with Alex Hyde White, who plays Reed Richards in the film. And it, w it was really, really touching to hear Rebecca Staub describe how he took up the Reed Richards role even among the cast. Where he sort of became yeah, the leader he... within their little group. Yeah, he absolutely did. And, you know, I don't know if that's like this normal thing where the actors uh, take the roles that they're playing uh, to heart and become that, you know, figure within the, the dynamic of the cast. But he certainly did uh, during production and especially afterward because he was kind of the driving force that uh, that um, uh, he and Michael Bailey Smith, who played uh, Ben Grimm, started this kind of brain, uh, uh, barnstorming tour across conventions across the country trying to raise awareness of the film you know, as it was uh, just going away in terms of uh, uh, the possibility of release. Mm -hmm. But Alex was, uh, yeah, he really was the leader. Yeah. He has so many wonderful things to say. And, and when they, you're talking about that barnstorming tour, where they, they basically went to conventions, went to comic book shows, you know, auto shows, anyone that could, you know, get them a table and, and let them start, sign their stills. But he describes that perhaps their unconventional way at promoting the film led to so much attention to it that that helped it to become lost. Yeah, and I think he's right, you know, uh, because there was this, uh, you know, at the end of production, as they went into post-production, um, the, 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 the wheels kind of started turning on exactly what they were going to do with this property because they fulfilled their contract in terms of the option. Constantine, they made a movie uh, before... The deadline ran out on their option in, in December of 92, and, and they were not very happy. Um, and it wasn't that it was a bad movie. It was just wasn't the movie that they wanted to make. They were still had their eyes set on 20th Century Fox and, you know, uh, a budget of 50 times what uh, Corman had. Yeah. And, and what's fascinating about that is I... For those of us, and I'd like everyone here to chime in too, for a movie made for the catering budget mm. of one of the 2005-2008 films, they delivered something much closer in spirit to what Stan and Jack put on the page. Mm, that's <laughs> true. I mean, it was very Guys, helpful. Every, right, everyone... Yes, it, it's that family dynamic. There's there's a charm to it that, that overwhelms the fact well, that they had no money to spend. That's the big difference all around, right? The The heart of it it has like that classic feel to the characters and even though the Dr. Doom is grand and, and executed mm -hmm. better than he has been in any of the other films. Having recently seen all of those and then watching this, it was quite uh, refreshing to go back to, to Corman's and just be like, ah, yeah. <laughs> why can't we like take a little bit of this add a little bit of like an Indiana Jones and let's go get lost in space. What's, yeah. what's the yeah. problem? Well, what I was saying was, why don't we take that original script and shoot it today or do a little remake or like, you know, remake it with the budget and the and the investment that that these films are getting today? Because I really like the story. I like the interpretation of the characters. It was fun. That was one of the funnest things of the film for me. Yeah, I love how you just say uh, Stan and Jack, Bob, you know, without having to say their last names earlier. It, uh, yeah. it, tells, it tells me you've got a hip audience. <laughs> yeah, that's that, that's our, that's our crew and our crew here, too. Drilling, them in, drilling it into them yeah, over the years. It's been so many years of this. But th there's a, one moment that it continues to affect me, and it, it's a small, quiet moment. But it's after we, we've seen them 
Ben and, and Reed as younger people, Dooms had his accident, and they're going to go into space. And they show up at Mrs. Thorne's boarding house. Oh, yeah. And, and sort of knock on her, well, can, can Johnny and Sue go into space with us? <laughs> and and, and it's, it's the mom's line as they're standing by the door, look at you, you know, my fantastic four. And I'm getting choked up saying it. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, at, at my age now, the idea of I'm ever going to see a better representation of it than that moment and these people. Yeah, and you know, and you're you're so right, and it's a moment that I think the newer films are they'd be afraid to have that moment. That's just heartfelt mm-hmm. and sincere. And uh, you said family dynamic earlier, and you couldn't be more right. Uh, the, the 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 remakes and the reboots that they've had, they just they 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 seem to actively avoid that element rather than celebrate it, which uh, I think hurts the franchise. Yeah. And what's not on? What I don't understand when we. You've had these discussions about a lot of films around here, some of the darker ones that have come out, where you hear, oh, you know, Superman can't smile and superheroes can't do that and they can't be sort of Boy Scouts and lighter in tone. Well, people seem to go pay to see Captain America in movies and he acts rather like the Captain America of the 40s through the 60s into the 70s. And it didn't seem to hurt anybody. Or the box office grosses. You're absolutely right. There's this need, this want to just uh, to darken the tone and to, you know, make this, uh, you know, you you hear it's a cliche now to kind of complain about these movies as being uh, dark and gritty. But uh, they still maintain that tone in every new film that comes out, it seems. It's the Mm -hmm. exception that doesn't. I I have heard people, someone even sent me an email with a a picture fairly recently, knowing we were going to be speaking to you tonight, you know, that. If they made, at this point, a proper Fantastic Four movie with the tone the right way, the characters acting as they're supposed to, people would say, oh, they're ripping off The Incredibles. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, I, yeah, I get it. If you're, you're reach backwards that, that's into a, time. That's a generational thing, though. That's like if you, if you look to those kids that are in those React videos and you show them something like the Fantastic Four, their minds, because they were born in that era, would immediately go to The Incredibles. Yeah. I, I think. And there's no question Brad Bird's a fan. Yeah, sure. You know, although he's one of these people who won't admit to it. You know, it's sort of like it took it took George Romero about 15 years to say, oh, yeah, I kind of barred I Am Legend. You know, <laughs> but I, I did it well, I think. You know, I, and he, even in one interview, so he, I saw he apologized to Richard Matheson somewhere mm-hmm. down the road. And Matheson was, no, you did it. You, you did it better than we did. So <laughs> just, just just sort of go for it now. Uh, Marty, as you were interviewing all these people, and again, with the exception being Avi and Stan and, and, and Byrne, but your access to Roger Corman, and he was so open about sort of what was going on. As the years have gone on, the story ch- has changed as to who was the driving force behind it not coming out. Where do you sort of fall on this? Your documentary comes pretty close to pointing the finger in one direction I think but where do you stand personally as to yeah. who finally ditched this yeah well I mean if you follow kind of I mean there's a, there was there was uh, there's a timeline you know there there's a number of events that happened and uh, there is a while you know we didn't see the cancel checks there's an absolute trail of uh, of money and there was uh, Roger you know who's a businessman God bless him and he's not He's not the he's not the villain, you know, and I didn't yes. I didn't I didn't set out to, like, expose a villain necessarily. My intent was to, you know, celebrate this movie and, and bring attention 
and validation to all the people that worked on it, which I hope we did. And Roger, you know, took an opportunity to make some money. So he took a check from Constantine Films to not release the film, which was part of the contract that they had had. Uh, Marvel, in turn, and Avi Arad specifically, um, then uh, wrote a check uh, to Constantine Films uh, uh, to uh, take it from them. And so Marvel was instrumental in the fact of the movie never coming out. I don't think I'm saying too much, am I? I'm not giving too much away. No, no, absolutely not. You're wetting people's appetites because a lot of us have heard, and a lot of people in our listening audience have heard me rant and rave over over the years about they did this and they did this. And to me, seeing Roger describe, you know, this is going to be a, a big movie for us. This was the movie with the largest budget in, you know, Corman history at that point. Yeah, and I think if there's any indication of Corman uh, having fully intending for this thing to go and have a large release and to uh, go theatrical, which was what was his want, um, was the fact that he spent money, you know, after the film was finished. He made posters, those posters we were just talking about, Bob. Mm -hmm. You know, Roger Corman doesn't spend money if he doesn't have to. And the fact that he did that um, suggests, anyway, suggests strongly that he wanted this movie to come out. It would have been good for him. It would have been good business. Yeah. I think up to the last minute, it was, it was really a plan to have it released. Worst comes to worst. He could have had a direct to video franchise. If he had one theatrical release based on some of the other things he was doing at the time where he was at the, uh, maybe it was two years later, I guess the black scorpion thing was yeah. a TV movie and then became an actual series that ran for a couple of years for USA. Maybe. Yeah, you know, he can exploit or he sci-fi. Can ex- he can exploit a project. Yeah, Black Scorpion. That was funny you mentioned that because Craig Nevius, who wrote the uh, first draft, the screenplay for the Fantastic Four, was also uh, the writer on the Black Scorpion uh, series that Corman produced. Yeah. I actually own both Black Scorpion movies on Laserdisc. <laughs> <laughs> just because, just just as you were saying, you had to own all those things. Now, it was funny as we got near the end of the documentary where they're starting to describe the. The, the series of events that led to all the, I, I can say it out loud, the bootleg copies of this movie that have been everywhere, really since the movie, actually even before it wasn't released, it was kind of released. At, at, the, at one point, we had the editor, Greg Garland, and, and Ole Sasson, the director, trying to sneak into Corman's warehouse to steal back a print so they could yeah. have one of their own to show to other producers. Yeah, that was that was what they were up against in post-production, just the complete lack of support from anybody involved, uh, uh, from from Constantine, from Corman, from uh, Concord New Horizons. Uh, they, You're right, they were literally sneaking around, switching cans, uh, you know, trying to finish their movie. And then you're right, when it started to fall apart, they wanted that negative, and they actually considered, uh, you know, doing that, breaking the law. Now, when was the first time you saw this famous film? Yeah, I suspect it was when I came back from the Fangoria Weekend of Horrors, which I would go to every year throughout the 80s and 90s in New York City. And uh, it was, uh, I think, 99. You know, I tried to actually track down that number. And I think it was 1999, uh, which was when the bootleg kind of really got out there and all the uh, pirates uh, started picking it up and duping it. And from that point on, I mean, I would go back every year and I would, I would look for the better copy, you know, I would look for the one with, with less roll on the bottom and, you know, less grain and a generation above the one I had before. And I ended up, I mean, I probably owned, you know, goodness, 
six or eight of them, you know, including the DVDs and uh, VHSs over the years. Sounds very familiar. The first one I had was, it still had the time code on the bottom. Yes, nice. right. With, it, with yeah. a sort of, you know, with a sort of flagging video at the top, and it was, oh, I, I'm so happy to have this fourth generation hideous copy. The last one I picked up was at a Big Apple comic show, probably 10 years ago, that actually has DVD extras. Yes, it has yes, a, it has a, like a, a still gallery or something, still, right? Still gallery, the trailer, which I had, uh, I, I, I duped the trailer on, which the trailer for the film was on some New Horizons video cassettes that I had in my video store. What? So Artisort 2. Uh, and I had it on a foreign <laughs> film called Cabeza de Vaca. Mm-hmm. And oh why Carnosaur, I get why we got why on some Spanish action movie they had the, the, the trailer for the Fantastic Four and seeing what the film could look like when you saw the trailer cut together really says there's been a lot of denigration of oh it looks terrible, it looks terrible. Yes, you're on the worst possible copy you could see, and yes, it looks even cheaper than it was. Which yeah, what do you yeah, think the actual budget budget was? I mean, three quarters of a million dollars, a million at the yeah. outside. Uh, yeah, I put the number at seven fifty. Yeah, and so, there was, you know, because there were, you know, because uh, we talk a little bit about it in the documentary in terms of who brought what to the table, and uh, while Constantine brought a half of the budget, which they said was seven hundred fifty thousand dollars, Corman brought his seven hundred fifty thousand dollars, but that included corman's you know uh, accounting when it came to the studio and the yeah. rentals and uh you know the uh uh you know whatever he kind of owned and then would you know depreciate over the years and uh you know a lot of that budget that he brought to it i don't think ended up on the screen no but he used and reused every set he ever made ever that goes back into the aip days and certainly into this one where you can see in your documentary uh, there are sets from other films that repainted and, and turned around. But the things that were created specifically for the film, I'm sure a lot of money went into the thing suit that Cauchyafala wore. The, the servos in that mask are every bit as good as what would come 10 years later. And I, it, I absolutely agree. And it helps sell that character in the film because that character is so important to the, to the heart of the team. Steve, how many of those do you think they had to make? One. One? Really? They made one. Yeah. They made one. <laughs> really? Lord, they, they survived? One. They made two that's heads. All they, okay. That's all. One suit. They had two, yeah, right. two heads. One, one had the servos, and one was just, uh, you, you know, was just rubber, and, uh, and then, the, then just the suit. And, uh, I, you know, it's funny. We Through our Facebook page, we, uh, we found out who, who actually owns the suit now it's this kid down in uh, florida his name is marvin jenkins and he bought it at a show it's hysterical he's actually started you know uh carl chirpalio uh and uh and, he, and him are facebook friends now and it's hysterical you know they trade pictures of it and stuff it's awesome so now, because because there's only one suit that's why there are two people playing ben Grimm in the thing tell that story marty oh yeah, well, what they because the, the the production schedule was just so tight, you know. I mean, they didn't really get started on this until it was like September of '92, and you know they had to start rolling by by December 31st '92. So the I mean, and that did that, that they didn't have a script, you know. So mm-hmm. one of the first things they knew they had to do was to get a mold of the thing because they you know they needed a lot of time for that. So they had to start that process before 
they formally cast any of the movie. So uh, they just found a stunt guy, you know, uh, who was the right height and who had the right car eyes. And that was Carl uh, Trafalio. And they based, you know, the mold on him. And it wasn't until, you know, weeks later that they cast Michael Bailey Smith, who uh, played Ben Grimm. And I mean, I, I interviewed both these guys and, and it's hysterical because, you know, Carl is, you know, 5'10", maybe 5'11", maybe six feet. And, and Michael is 6'5", and huge. And He's 6'5", uh, across, too, yeah. Oh, yeah, just an enormous guy. Yeah. And there was no way they could have built the suit around him at that point. So uh, there's some great stories in the doc, you know, about Michael and Carl and how they dealt with that dynamic. It, and it works. Even, even knowing what was spent and, and however many struggles there were to get that done, when you see the thing do its clobbering time and the face is contorting and it's, yeah, this is how you wanted to see it as, as a fan of this book since, you know, issue number five back in 1962, seeing the thing on screen, not a, not an animated cartoon, not the Hanna-Barbera with Paul Freese or even Ted Cassidy a year later. It's like, no, this is the thing, how I wanted to see him. <laughs> so when I see him now as a giant turd, Oh! In, in the clips from the new movie, it's sort oh! of—it's just not—it's just not right. Not to mention a turd not wearing any pants. I'm sure you've seen the clips, Marty. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh. Uh, well, uh, now, uh, another uh, interesting battle that had to happen is the music, which is absolutely stirring. By it's David and Eric Worst, and yeah. they paid for it themselves. Yeah, kind of, you know, I mean, they had a budget for, uh, you know, for, for the composition, um, but it, it wasn't a lot of money. And, and that's, that, that was such the great thing about this movie was how everybody kind of rallied around Oli and Glenn uh, during post-production. And um, they, you know, they brought in their own orchestra. They recorded like this 40-piece orchestra. And there was an expectation that there would be money on the other side, I think, with the Worst Brothers. And uh, they did. They paid that orchestra out of their own pocket to create that score, which, I mean, if you tr you can search the tracks on YouTube and, you know, customize a little DVD or a little CD for yourself to hear this, this, uh, this, this score. And it is, it's magnificent. It really is, you know. Um, but, uh, yeah, there was uh, those guys. You know, a lot of people got screwed, but uh, those guys did indeed get screwed. Well, I, I, I remember it's, I believe it's Alex Hyde-White who mentions that the person who got screwed the most who really got gypped is the way he put it was Ole Sasson. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you really, know, go ahead. Yeah. I was just gonna say what happened was, you know, when this movie originally got shelved, um, cause there was, you know, I mean, there were guys like us, you know, back then and we were all waiting for it to come out and, uh, you know, and we were horribly disappointed. So, I mean, awareness was, you know, relatively high for a Corman film. And when it got shelved, you know, without explanation, the assumption was that, oh, the movie's got to be a piece of crap. You know, it's got to be unreleasable or else they'd release it. So there was, you know, a hit on these guys in terms of their performances for the actors and especially for Oli saying that, you know, if this movie is unreleasable, then Oli must be a horrible director. And I, I suspect it did hurt his career. I mean, he still works. He's, you know, he's been directing all along and uh, he's still, you know, active. But, um, this movie could have helped him, and it not coming out, I think, actually did hurt him. All the people in the cast, all as as they describe this thing that should have been a, a stepping stone that then isn't, that almost becomes something that retards their 
their progress, there's a disappointment in their voice that's actually, it, it's palpable and it, it's touching and that they all work so hard. I, I've always described the movie as it's one of those uh, Mickey and Judy movies from the 30s. Let's put on a show in the backyard. They were all in this struggle together. And then when that struggle got them nothing. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's a punch in the gut. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, and that right there, Bob, that that's what I was hoping to like to remedy. You know, I didn't I, I didn't want mm -hmm. this to be uh, skewering anybody. I didn't want to to wallow in the negativity of what happened. Um, I want to celebrate this movie. And I, I really, really did, because I just I love it to death. As, as I think everyone who can see it with clear eyes, when you say to people, oh, there's this movie, it's just just saying, oh, it's unreleasable. That's why it wasn't released. No, it was unreleased because of the politics of Hollywood in, in a way that I've never heard of before in Hollywood. It's Mark Sykes who says, how many movies has Roger Corman made and never released? One. Harumph. Harumph. See? <laughs> a harumph. A spot for a harumph. That's where you put in a harumph. Yeah, that cool. Yeah, that, that <laughs> Uh, that quote's yeah. right on uh, the the DVD box, the DVD art I did for that. We put that oh, right up the perfect. top, you know, because it is such a great quote. I mean, he managed, Roger managed to make movies where he had a, uh, the story is Little Shop of Horrors was made because they had three extra days on a set he had rented. So yeah. sent Charlie Griffith home. Can you write a script over the weekend so we can shoot Monday and Tuesday? Because I got to make a movie. I got this set that I'm paying for. Huh. <laughs> Uh, there's a movie, The Terror, with Jack Nicholson. They had, had Boris Karloff, apparently, signed for two weeks while they shot the movie The Raven. And they finished in nine days or something. So Boris was bidding his goodbyes to everyone. Where are you going, Roger said. Well, <laughs> the movie's over. No, I've got you for five more days, but what are you going to do? I'll figure something out. So you just shoot some stuff. It's, it's, so it's, it's Karloff and Nicholson at the door, like, talking to each other. And they made it into a movie. It's not a very good movie. <laughs> <laughs> but he could, he could make a movie out of anything. So the fact that this movie didn't get released, it's just stunning. Uh, Joseph Culp mentions that it is, it is entirely possible that because of the legendary status of this, the not releasing of it, that more people may have seen this film than would have if it had actually come out the normal way. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think all you, I mean, to answer that question, all you need to do is just put it side by side with uh, with Albert Pune's Captain America and Mark Goldblatt's yes. The Punisher, you know, mm -hmm. and those movies, I know they came and went and exist and are mm -hmm. on all kinds of different formats of home video. And the same thing would happen with Fantastic Four, you know, it really just would have sat there and been this little oddity that we would have looked back on and kind of like, oh, isn't that cute? Um, but because of what happened, uh, I think I, I think he's right. I think a hell of a lot more people have seen it than uh, than would have otherwise. And and there is there are some brickbats. You'll 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 see people. But I remember watching it was somebody else's podcast, video podcast they were doing, where they were reviewing you know the worst Hollywood superhero movies ever, and it was Supergirl, uh, the Fantastic no. Four, and and the Punisher, <laughs> and. When they finished, after watching all three, and they, they reviewed them all, they said, you know, th our opinion about this is absolutely the reverse of what it was going in. What we thought would be the worst turned out to be the best, and it was Fantastic Four. Hmm. That, yeah, that, I, I, don't, I don't like the—I'm glad that they 
that have changed their minds because I really just I despise that thing of 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 of, of railing on this movie or even those other two movies or any movie for that matter. Um, yeah. And enjoying themselves as they're doing it, you know, this tone that people take when they're talking about uh, films like this, it uh, oh, it sickens me. <laughs> it, it, it's people with. <laughs> With ideas and intent, and no one sets out to make a bad movie, not even Ed Wood back in the old days. Though <laughs> <laughs> so maybe the people who made Troll 2, I'm not so sure about that one. I think for Fantastic Four, you, I think you need two things. I think you need a sort of a built-in affinity for the property itself. If, you're, if you've read any of like the Galactus trilogy or you've seen some of those older stories and you know the, the tone and the heart of what the Fantastic Four was about... Like the Fantastic Four that this movie gives you is very much like that good time Fantastic Four. It's not this dark, you know, turd mired bullshit. That's yeah, there. yeah, yeah. <laughs> elsewhere. We're throwing around turd a lot. But, um, <laughs> yes, we are. Ah, uh, why not? It is. We have to mention it at least twice, right? Hey, it gets us a PG rating. Yeah. <laughs> I, I lost the thread of what I was saying, but go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, <laughs> uh, Joey, you had, uh, in an email to me, had an interesting comment about the finale of the film and the Human Torch's interesting battle with a laser beam. Oh, he just, he flies faster than the speed of light. <laughs> and I was like, and the only reason I was thinking about that the whole movie was because at the beginning of the movie, the professor talks about the speed of light yes. and there's, but there's but there's like moments like that that are kind of that that hokiness and that fun kind of uh that that hokey kind of element to that film that i loved i love the energy to it and i loved watching it and it was funny and the whole jewel character the jeweler character and dr doom's you know laugh and all of that like it works for what this movie was 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 going for and it, and it really clicks together and it kind of goes back to my comment before about like you know, if they remade this movie today, the the splendor of it would just be magical. I think, like, just there's yeah. so much spirit in it that, yeah, you tweak a little bit of science and you tweak some of the weirder, you know, plot points like um, uh, college age Reed hanging out with middle school Sue Storm. Uh, yeah, that was weird. I was going to bring you know, that you up. Just, you just tweak a couple of those things. You just tweak a couple of those things, and I think this movie would would totally fit and would be a, a return to form, I think, for mm-hmm. the franchise, too. Yeah. I think Reed is more living in the Storm's boarding house than he's actually hanging out with Sue. She does have a crush yeah. on him. Also, a, that's well, she was always... Go ahead, Mara. I was going to say, that's the Sailor Moon dynamic right there. Usagi is in middle school and um, Mama Chan is in college and they date. So that didn't throw me off at all. <laughs> Even though it should have. The two actors are close to an age too, which was nice to see. A lot of like at the end of the day, the, the three Sue and, and Reed and um, Ben were close in age and, and when they were adults and then Johnny mm-hmm. read as much younger. And that again was like perfect for for the dynamic of the film once we got into the, the more adult things, you know, um, if you look at the casts now in the two from two, the mid two thousands and, and the, the last one, and it doesn't have that. It doesn't have that, um, maturity to it. They keep trying to play this kind of, especially the last one that like young, you yeah. know, by yeah. just, yeah. just out of high school group. Yeah. Well, yeah, that doesn't now, work. <laughs> now, now, whether on purpose 
chance or just happy accident in the original conception of the group by having the different ages you brought into play sort of every different human dynamic. You had the two friends, both older than the young woman, and it's the boyfriend-girlfriend, slight bit of romantic triangle early. Then her younger brother, who's also sort of the younger brother by extension of Ben and Reed, yeah. and how it all ties together. You could tell a lot of stories. Oh, you're trying you're to sort that out. Precisely, Bob. I mean, because if you go back to, I mean, not only just the casting that in the Corman film of the Mark uh, and Laura Schiff were the casting director for, but if you go back to the original book, I mean, that was the age dynamic uh, in Kirby and Lee's, you know, original conception of this crew, and completely lost in every other iteration. Hmm. Yeah, uh, you lose so much of what makes it special just with it. Now, as you mentioned, Mark and Laura's casting, uh, in seeing the documentary, there were some interesting people that nearly got these gigs oh yeah the cool thing about mark is uh he you know he saves everything he's just you know he has that collector thing that i think a lot of us have i know i do and he saved the actual sign-in sheets for the casting sessions that they had back in you know uh would have been september and october of 92 so he has every single person that came into concord new horizons and read for not it was funny because it was not only the fantastic four but it was like three or four other films they were working on so and it was there was a there's an impressive list of people who read for this movie i don't want to give too many mm -hmm. of them away though no we don't because no, i want people to sort of squee when they hear the names but there are some <laughs> people who were involved in in current marvel films in very big ways oh who almost found their way into this one so there you go now speaking of that we i i don't want to cut this short but we're beginning to have some technical weirdness happen <laughs> So um, before we have a complete and utter meltdown, Marty, it has been yes. such a great pleasure to speak to you again with, with Doomed and this three-year journey that you went on to bring us this story. And I want to thank, for everyone else, just say thank you for, for going down this road for us. Oh, man, are you kidding me? Thank you. Uh, <laughs> hey, I, get, I, got my, I got my name in the credits, which made me tear up, I have to say. <laughs> awesome. Uh, so let, let's just first say, let's say again, where can people see Doomed and when and in sure. what formats? Absolutely. So October 11th is our big video on demand uh, release. You can get it through your cable systems, Charter, Time Warner, Comcast, Xfinity. Uh, you can get it on iTunes. Uh, you can get it through uh, a lot of the different streaming services. That's October 11th. And then December 20th is the physical media release that'll be the blu-ray and the dvd got a bunch of extras um yes. and uh yeah you can uh it's gonna be i can't wait i just i absolutely can't wait till i can actually hold the physical copy in my hand shrink wrapped and you know it's gonna be so exciting now speaking of that i'll ask one more question before we we sign off and then ask you where they can people reach you directly uh, i'm sure through the doomed facebook and all that stuff do you think that your film and the attention that's going to get paid to the Corman Sasson Fantastic Four might drive someone to finally release it legitimately? Yeah, that's the, I mean, that wasn't the intent and it wasn't the hope and it was never, you know, something that was in the forefront of my mind. But could you imagine if it did? I mean, I, 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 we, we started, uh, we, did, we didn't really go too far with it, but Mark and I came up with a hashtag of uh, Release Corman FF. And we, we had, uh, but uh, I, w I would love to see that happen. Talk about validation. That would be the ultimate. And then just think about the, the exposure for everybody that was involved. You know, they'll finally get, you know, a residual check. 
Yeah. Yeah. Wouldn't Maybe a double great? feature, a little double DVD. Doom. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. 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 Perfect. Criterion. The Criterion yeah. Collection. They sell <laughs> that uh, that Captain America you guys mentioned. They sell it at Target for like five bucks, and I'm like, if that could be here, where right. is the Fantastic Four movie? Yep. Amen. Do you think it exists? I mean, there there was a story that they burned the negative. I can't imagine anyone doing that. Yeah, I mean, it would be the first time in the history of the you know the world where somebody <laughs> physically burned the only existing negative for a feature film. So I, I, I got to believe that was just hyperbole and spoken, you know, uh, through glibly. So no, it, it's got to exist. It's still out there. Uh, that's great to hear. That, that's a perfect way, a, a lovely up note to close on. So, Marty Langford, where can people read about Doomed? On You have Twitter and Facebook thingies, I'm sure. Yeah, Doomed FF, uh, Facebook and Twitter. Um, the Facebook page, we're fairly active. We try to update at least a couple of days a week and have conversations. Uh, and Doomed FF uh, at Twitter. So, uh, yeah, reach out to us. Great. Marty Langford, thank you so much for joining us again we are we're, we're going to sign off here on the air kind of but hang out just a bit after but again we'll uh, our, our, our thanks as as a podcast and as a fan base for what you did thank you very very much you're welcome all right so that's it for this week's talking comics as always you can send us comments or questions through our email podcast at talkingcomicbooks.com we're also on twitter at talking comics you can go to talkingcomicbooks.com for all of our reviews which are an abundance, <laughs> um, lots of material going <laughs> yeah. up, lots of um, still like fresh voices. And I'm like, I don't know these people yet. <laughs> so yet, uh, yet. Yeah. yes. So if you are a talking comics reviewer, please tweet me <laughs> and tweet, introduce yourself to me so I can yeah. make sure I'm, I'm catching all of you on, on Twitter and following you. And I'm sure Steve and Joey, you kind of, well, Joey probably has all of their, twitter accounts but i have a few i don't have all of them yeah. so please do the same for me as I don't well. yeah yeah come to the beer authority yes, yes yes if you're if you're in the area and, come come meet us too it'll be fun and here's an important thing let us know who you are when you when you tweet or when you follow i have so many people that do that that follow that don't say hello so i don't know who yeah. they are so i don't get to interact with oh. them yes yeah. yes so we slide into that. those dms yo yes um, we also have tons of podcasts on the site. Um, Steve and Bob do the book club podcast. Yeah. If I could plug that really quick. Go for uh, it. Because it's going to come up before you know it. We're already into October. Uh, October 21st is the record date for uh, Volume 1, Immaculate Conception of Gail Simone and John Davis Hunt's uh, Queen Room. Thank you, Bob. Vertigo. Uh, read it. It's weird, wild stuff. Uh, I have the rough draft of the questions and outline for the show, and it is going to be really fun. So uh, definitely read along, send us your thoughts, and uh, yeah. Awesome. End of plug. Awesome. Yeah. And um, Legendary Runs, this week we are recording our Scott Snyder Detective Comics run, <gasps> wow. which is the one that has Francesco Francavilla. Yeah, nice. that was good. That was good. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> With Jock as well. And this one is about 10, 11 issues, which is nice. I like it. It's a, it's a lot more, it's a lot easier to manage than the Simonson run. So that's coming up too. We also have DD podcasts, movies, TV, video games, oh, everything. Um, trousers. So, trousers. Talking, <laughs> talking trousers. trousers. Definitely, definitely have to plug that one. Um, talking Statham. <laughs> 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 
So, Steve, where can our listeners find you? Uh, if you want to get in touch with me, I am at dead underscore anchorist on Twitter. And? and? <laughs> no, no. You, you, you killed it last week, man. We're done. Uh, We're done. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at <laughs> Joey Bracino. And, and Bob? Well, you can look for me at the con. Search for the oldest <laughs> non-creator in the room. <laughs> and there I'll, there I'll be. No, Bob Ryer at TalkingComicBooks.com. And you can find me on Twitter at Megamaramon. So, for Bob. Good evening. See you at the con. Steve. Harumph. And Joey. See you Saturday. I'm Mara Wood. Until next time, to be continued. <laughs>